Have you ever been shot at? Have you ever been shot at and witnessed two of your close friends being wounded right next to you, one shot through the neck and the other through the arm? Have you ever been shot at while trying to coordinate a medevac for your two buddies that just got shot? Have you ever been shot at while coordinating a medevac helo for your two buddies that were just shot while simultaneously calling in a nine line on an enemy position that's just 150 meters away? Yeah, I haven't either, but I know a guy who has. That's called Tuesday, folks, in the life of an Air Force combat controller. On today's episode, I welcome retired Master Sergeant Eric Ballister, a 20-year combat controller with 10 combat deployments and stories for days. I'm your host, Susan, and this is the Ready Room Podcast. All right, folks, we're here with Eric Ballister. Eric, welcome to the Ready Room Podcast. Thanks for coming on, brother. Suzanne, thank you for having me, man. Uh, no worries, man. Pleasure's mine. We're here in Phoenix, Arizona, because we are a mobile podcast, and uh, kicking in your office with all your I Love Me stuff on the walls, <laughs> which is pretty There's sweet. A lot. You, got some good, a lot. you got some good gear. There's a, a shotgun over there. There's a paddle. It's flare. It's cover. all flare. I you got to have 35 pieces to make it a, a real A whole bunch of medals. There's a bronze star. Not, <laughs> bad. Not bad. My I love me wall would be like a lot smaller than this. So no worries, man. Tons of ribbons. Yeah, ribbons. Air Force gives you ribbons. That's that's one thing that they do really well. I heard that. I heard they you get some lot. like every six months you just get a new one. Is that real? Yeah. Dude, just awesome, for man. being a good guy, you get a ribbon. In the Marine Corps, they take them away from you. Like, we gave you four, now you're three. You know? You do 30 years of distinguished service and you got two ribbons. Yeah. Did, were you in the Marine Corps? Yeah, I was, man. I got, a, you know, you got your, your McDonald's ribbon and then whatever the other one you get for free is, you know, those are my two. I graduated basic training with yeah. four and my brother I did lost. Four, I was a four-star general. No shit. <laughs> All right, man. Well, dude, thanks for taking the time. We're going to yeah. get into this. So this is part one of two. So for anybody who might actually listen to this, this is part one of two. The first one with Eric is going to be about his life as a combat controller kind of the background of that. And the second one is going to be a lot cooler, which will be some gnarly stories. Um, so real quick, man, before we get going into kind of the nuts and bolts, tell us where you grew up. So I just happened to grow up here. I am literally in the same house that I left to basic training from. So I call Mesa, Arizona, my stomping grounds. I'm very familiar with this area. Kind of needed to come back to reset after doing 20 years. So Back here, uh, originally hail from Long Island, New York, uh, but I'm not familiar with that place. I hesitate saying New York to anybody. So you're a New Yorker. Oh, I'm originally. a New Yorker, but if I meet another New Yorker, they're like, oh, bro, do you remember? And I'm like, nah, man. Nah. No idea. <laughs> so why'd you join the Air Force? So right out of basic, uh, right out of high school, made the decision. So kind of followed in my brother's footsteps, but didn't do the same exact thing he did. Um, I come from a, a, a family history of men who served. My grandfather served during the Korean War. My father served during the after the Vietnam War. He 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 was in the Marine Corps. My grandfather was in the Army. My brother went to the Marine Corps, uh, did twenty years, and then I naturally couldn't do what my brother did just out of spite. Um, what just, is your so? Let's let's get into that for a second. So tell us about your brother. <laughs> so my brother just happens to be a coworker of yours, um, and he's a F eighteen driver in the Marine Corps. Did twenty years distinguished service, but grew up with him not being not really being the older brother F eighteen pilot kind of guy, but just being an asshole. Like yeah, that he was just a dickhead. That I 
like we we were at each other's throats and and he still takes credit today for everything that I've accomplished. If it's hard, if if it is special in some way, he's like, yeah, I did that yes. for you. That was my little me. brother did that because of me. <laughs> I taught him that. So he um so he's a Hornet driver, obviously we know, and and shout out to Fiesta uh, yeah. Yeah. when he does listen to this. But so you said out of spite, you couldn't you had to go somewhere else besides the Marine Corps. Absolutely. Did you know 100%. the Air Force? Did you have a plan like no, in the Air Force? No. Um, so I grew up wrestling. So I was, I was, I already gravitated towards that culture, like that, that, that sports, like jock, like um, culture is what I craved. So I didn't really know a lot about special ops. We hadn't gone to war yet, so there wasn't. There was Chuck Norris movies and there was, you know, Navy SEAL movies. And I watched Commando and Predator are like foundational movies for me. So I I knew at some point, grew up playing with G.I. Joes, that that was for me, but really didn't understand like in what capacity. Just knowing that I wanted to surround myself with top performing people like I was in high school, you know, a a bunch of jocks, like no single single-minded type, uh, everybody working towards the same common goal. So really didn't have a direct path in the service, but I knew I had to differentiate something special, something mm-hmm. unique, something with impact. And it, it wasn't going to be the Marine Corps. So it was, it kind of narrows yeah, it. Yeah. 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 All right. So <laughs> did you know, uh, you know, you mentioned special ops. Did you know about combat controlling or anything of that? Cause you know, most people, they think air force, it's, you know, big bombers, cappuccinos, living in hotels, working from nine to two every other Tuesday, you know. <laughs> That's factually correct. You know, that is all it is. <laughs> they think it's just, for the most part, a, a cakewalk. Yeah. But in reality, and I, I learned this as well in the Marine Corps, I had no idea how much involvement you guys have as combat controllers in JTACs, specifically with, like, on the ground. Yeah. The, the amount of times I spoke with a Marine JTAC or FAC was minimal. Right. 99% of the time, it was... Air Force guys or special ops guys. Yeah, they own it's it's a it's a heavy market in the Air Force, right? To 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 control air power. That is something that the Air Force takes seriously, and they they put a lot of money and they put a lot of attention into grooming people to be that professional, to be the guy who can harness air power, the guy who can synchronize assets, the guy who has an attachment to the Air Force. I think that's important. That understands like the culture and understands the mission, but also can adapt to the ground, the ground mission. So they put a lot of time and energy into it. And I had no fucking idea that that job existed. Right. Zero. Most people still don't. I, I yeah. No clue. Uh, the first time, as a matter of fact, first time I got a whiff of it was in basic training. That was when I found out that there was a combat MOS or in the Air Force, they call it an AFSC. That was my first like real idea that, oh, they do have something elite. Now I knew that they had, you know, you hear about security forces and you hear about SEER and there's, there's some jobs that, you know, they, they are more ground centric than the air forces, than, than, uh, the typical air force mission is or what people think it is. But as you dig a little bit deeper, then you start figuring out, okay, there's something else out there and we're, these guys are getting a lot of attention over here. So that was my first like real, like I would say informed idea of something that I knew was the path that I wanted to go to. Okay. So two part question. What did you have in mind before that? And then how did you learn about that, that there was this avenue you could do that was 
do some pretty gnarly cool stuff. I, I had a complete childlike uh, mentality, and that was firefighter or a cop. You know, that, that, to Strong. be honest with you, so like you're like a six year old. It, it, that's yeah. it. it. I just wanted to go do some man shit, you know, and and I saw that as being a chance to serve my country. Um, again, we weren't at war, but there's still you can't stop a person's mm-hmm. drive to serve, right? So there, that's in everybody. It's innate. Like you're going to have this thing that burns inside you that makes you want to go towards service. Right. And I, but I still was a child. I was still like, what year is this? This is 99. Okay. 1999. Um, I'm being a dumbass, right? The only good thing I got going for me is I'm wrestling and I'm actually hanging out with my same it happens to be my wife, and uh, we were actually dating at this point in high school. So those are the only two real good things I had going for me. Wrestling and your girlfriend. And my girlfriend, now my wife nice. of 20 years. So, uh, I, But still just a complete child mentality. But again, I, I think everybody has their unique story, what drives them to service and, and how they end up where they're at. And mine, I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed to say it was motivated by not, going, not following my brother's footsteps. And then... Just want to go do something cool. Yeah. I love it. Don't do your older brother what he does and do something challenging. (laughs) Yeah. Simple thinking, man. And my brother, although he joined the Marine Corps, he didn't have some super sexy job that I had to, like, I had to measure up against, right? He was, he ended up being like a radio maintainer when he first went in, an enlisted Marine. And not to take away from that, that's, that is a, that's a, that's a good job in the Marine Corps, but like, that didn't measure on my scale of like badassery. So yeah. I gravitated towards something above that, something more manly than that. And that was a huge factor in a lot of my decisions. More manly. Than, <laughs> yes, did you hear that? Yeah, more manly than you. I think he was, he got to be a staff sergeant. Yeah. So he, he got did. to be an E6. He did. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. So that, that answers the first part. And then the second part, when you got introduced to, you know, this cooler side of the Air Force. How did that work out? Do you guys graduate and then you select, or how does it work from boot camp? How do you get to be in in line to be a combat controller? So I ended up going. I didn't go combat control in the very beginning. I, I had a, I would say, a more regimented approach to getting into special ops, which I ended up spending uh, twelve years of my career in. But I went to TACP, which is another ground job, and it. And I would say that just for layman's sakes, it is a, the infantry job for the Air Force. It is the guy who attaches to the Army, and he's going to go out and he's going to control air power for the Army. Very similar to the combat control structure, and we'll go into that a little bit later. But I kind of went into it. I stair-stepped it, and I went into basic training. And in basic training, I found out about combat MOSs. Still didn't know too much about um, combat control yet. I knew about pararescue, and that was another elite position within the Air Force that has a ton of attention. People are way more familiar about pararescue than they were with combat control, but I didn't want to touch people's butts. Like they, those are medics, right? They're, yeah. they're phenomenal medics. They're they're some of the most trained people on the battlefield. You, you have a PJ come to come take care of you. You got an injury. You, you you're gonna be all right. Yeah. Those so these are, these are PJs. You know, from my knowledge, and correct me here. They can kick in doors and clear rooms. They can pack you up if you got shot. 
I mean, they're, they're pretty skilled. They are. They are, uh, you know, they have the jack of all trade, master of none, like every other job has, it seems like, in, in the military. But these guys are so well-versed in so many different things, right? They, they are competent enough to align with any organization and be not a liability, right? They can go in and fill in in almost any position. And they are hell of a, they, they are exceptional at rescue. So anything rescue you can imagine, technical rescue, collapse structures, uh, collapsed vehicles, people falling down mountains, people being stuck in a tree, you name it, these guys will get to the individual, treat them and get them down. And like even the private sector leans on these guys to do this mission set. So I, I got, that got my attention just because of, it had a bunch of hard ass dudes running around doing hard stuff, but it wasn't it wasn't something that I had a desire. I didn't have a desire to treat people like right. the medical side. The was, medical side, sure. I think that's similar to like the call to service, right? Somebody like feels that that is in their that's that's who they are. They like treating people. They like healing. Healers, you guys know what I'm talking about. You just have it in you. That's something that you are just born with. I did not have that mechanism. I wanted to fuck things up. I wanted to hurt people. I wanted to do damage. Not that PJs don't get a chance to do that too, but that's what I wanted to specialize in. And what better way than to yield Thor's hammer on the battlefield and be able to control airstrikes is that is the funnest thing that I can imagine doing. And I was learning about it in basic training. Somebody started telling me about it and they're like, hey, you can you can direct airstrikes and make possibly 20 people, 30 people go away at one pop. One pop, these guys are going away. You got my attention. Right. That seems like something that might be, I might be good at that. That might be something that I might be interested in. So that was basic training that I got, that got my atten- attention. And usually your job is selected for you. Like if you don't go into it with, clear intentions to say, Hey, I want to be a cop or I want to be a linguist. Or like, if you're not defining it, you're probably going to go to the greater needs of the air. They're going to pick something for you. Unless you're just like exceptionally bright and you just, you're as bad as the, is the score that, uh, you, you take a vocational skills test to, to figure out like where, where they can place you. What, What are you capable of doing? So if you don't score so high in that, to where they're going to make you a linguist, then they're going to put you, yeah, where you would like to go. Maybe you get your first, second, third choice. Uh, but if you're a nug, you're probably going to go be, you know, you're going to do something that a nug can do. You're going to go dig ditches, right? So I took my ASVAB and I, and I, I was qualified for all these different jobs, firefighting, SEER, TACP, pararescue, combat control. So I threw my hat into the TACP piece and did that for about four years, four to five years doing that. And so I, what to, you know, we got just to break it down. A little yeah. Bit. If we yeah, speak yeah. acronyms, nobody will know right. what we're talking about. <laughs> but so for the, the TACP tackle air control party, give us a, a 30 second, you know, knowledge dump on what, what is a T paint T what is a TAC P and what do they do? Okay. Uh, TAC P is a tactical air command and control party specialist. So it is a Air Force member that attaches to an Army element, an Army maneuver element, and they are the focal point for anything that's in the air, anything that flies. They are going to be the coordination point for that. 
and they're going to support whatever the maneuver element wants done. So the army owns it. The army owns that tack P and he tells them, Hey, this is what I need you to help me do. And it's up to that TACP member, that that Air Force member, to solve the problem using air support. What type of a unit? What size unit? And this is, I feel like we could talk about this for an hour. Yeah. I don't actually yeah. know the answer. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Are you attached to like a battalion, a company, or yeah. who I do you work with directly? So depending on what your rank is. So as a junior guy, you're going to go down to battalion level. So you're going to support at the at the battalion level, the lowest echelon that, that has a headquarters section that you can supplement, right? And you go and support a battalion that, excuse me, a battalion that has three other TACP members that are there with you. They're, they're also assigned to that battalion level. So you can break up into three different, three different individual units to support three different elements within that battalion if required. So if that battalion just decides to break apart and do some maneuver element, you have the capability to support that with Either a JTAC, which we'll go into that later on, um, a, a TACP, a Tactical Air Command and Control Party Specialist, has the additional certification in the military called a JTAC, a Joint Terminal Attack Controller, that's authorized to employ ordnance from aircraft. Nobody else on the battlefield is allowed to do that. Unless it's an, in a dire emergency, the only person that can say cleared hot and release ordnance from an aircraft is a certified JTAC and every service can can provide them, but the Air Force is has the predominant amount of JTACs and highly proficient JTACs. So TAC PL and it's usually usually align with conventional military forces, and that can go anywhere from heavy mechanized units all the way down to range battalions. So they they go all up and down the um, the spectrum, and they even go as far as supporting uh, special forces ODA detachments. So they have the capability of attaching to special operations forces also. But traditionally, they traditionally it is a conventional military assignment. Got it. Uh, an assignment where you're you're going out with either light infantry, heavy mechanized, uh, air assault, airborne, um, and and going and doing their will. So when you start getting so when you say that's your uh, not your basic level, but your introductory level, you know. TACP. Yeah. Uh, and then when you start getting into the combat controlling, then you got a little more specialized units that you're working with. Yeah. And, okay. and that is not a path for everybody, right? I, I, I think that my path to combat control um, is a little bit, is a lot longer than other people take. A lot of guys just go directly into it, go right into combat control, right out of basic training, they go into it. And I would compare it to 18 Delta or 18, 18 series selection for the army. So special forces guys traditionally had to serve in a conventional capacity in some conventional army unit and serve three or four years. I don't know what the exact standard was before they could volunteer to go be become special forces. Right. And then they developed the x-ray program or the, the direct right into special forces, uh, SFQC special forces qualification course. So I kind of took a similar approach, right? I went into conventional, conventional workspace, conventional tactics to get my soldiering skills down. And, and, and I look at a ladder, you know, later in my career and, and I saw by design how this helped me. It, it groomed me because it, it made me so much better, like of somebody who can attach to an army team. I was really, really exceptional at attaching to army teams. Because I was an army dude. So you think 
So being starting off as a introductory TACP slash JTAC and then moving into combat controlling, you said that's non-traditional. So you, it is. So it do is. you think that prepped you better when you're getting in a contact combat controller role? I think it I think it prepared me for the warfare that I was gonna see after after two thousand one because I was able to I was able to slowly work myself into unconventional battle space, which is a very, very difficult area to work in. Even with special operations training, unconventional battle space is so difficult to to function. And combat control offers a incredible two-year pipeline to train a child, you know, starting at 19 years old, these guys can get this two-year-long pipeline. And it's special operations. It is the fastest it was the fastest pipeline to get into special operations before the it, before the eighteen series before special forces decided okay let's start hiring some young dudes there's talent there's young talent let's start screening some of these guys so combat control and pararescue was the fastest way to get to special ops so you went from how, how did you get from just from being attack B you know with a army battalion to transition into combat controlling. Is there an application? Is it, hey, I want to transfer? Or how does that go? Yeah, it, it is not a streamlined process for retrainees. For people to retrain into that job is not the easiest thing, but there is a process for it. And my process was an application. You submit an application to even get screened as a prior service or a, a retrainee. They're screening you a little bit more stringent than they're screening the kid out of basic training right. because... It, they don't want just some chucklehead. If they can control it, they're not just going to take some guy who's couldn't cut it in another job, and now they're going to bring you into. Got it. And how many job. years did you do as a tag piece? Four, four years. I did four years. At, at the four year mark, I started my transition, and it took me a year to get into combat control to enter the pipeline. And then the pipeline starts. And then or the, the, the training. Starts. Correct. Dude, talk yeah. about the the training. So you you've gone to TACP school. Yep. You can control fires. You yeah, know, ground and, fires, air fires, all those. And then it gets into the fun stuff because you know in advance you're going to be attached to some type of soft unit, right? With, yeah. As a combat controller. Yeah. So, and, dude, talk through, the, talk through that training. How fun is that? I'll tell you, you know, if I wasn't prepared by hearing stories from other, other buddies that had attempted it or started educating myself in it, I was in for a rude awakening if I didn't start doing some homework because the pipeline when I went through in 2004 is just, it, it's a kick in the, it's a kick in the nuts, like out the gate. You're going into, you know, the, the first thing that they have you do is they put you through a screening at Lackland Air Force Base and they're just beating you down for a couple of weeks to see like, all right, what, what's this guy cut from? Like, is, can this guy even... Whether what we're about to is this mental him. beating, physical beating, it's both. It's, it's physical beatings, uh, just physical beatings. That just fun physical beatings. Yeah, just yeah. just shenanigans. <laughs> um, and and it's really just it was just the tip. And they there were just on the tip. Just and, the tip. And so they beat you down for a couple weeks, but I, I was already prepped for that. I already knew the shenanigans. I knew the games. I had already, I've been to airborne school and air assault school and ranger school. And these are all things that I volunteered to do as a TACP. Like I was chasing this, I was chasing this elite mission that I didn't exactly know what it looked like yet 
again, we weren't at war, but I knew I wanted to be ready. Like when the flag went up, I wanted to be next to standing next to the dudes that were the hardest individuals on the battlefield. Like the, I wanted to be with like, however cliche it sounds, I wanted to be with the Spartans, you know, I, I wanted to be with the warriors, not the guys that would falter, not the guys that were half, half-assed in it or, or didn't really want to be there. So I was chasing just like every other young uh, military guy chasing quals. Like you're, you're just trying to get the rack and stack. We used to, you know, they called it the stack. You get your tab, you get your jump wings, you get your air assault wings and guys would go after all these, all these schools. So I had already got a glimpse of the fuck fuck games. I already knew what that was about. So they were going to have to bring it really strong for me to even start to falter. You know, I, I had already start started to develop that. I call it like the seven layers of motivation. Like when the shit hits the fan and, and you're just, you're humping a 90 pound rock and you're fucked up on sleep for three days and your, your knee hurts and you got poked in the eye with a stick during land nav the night before. <laughs> like I had went through so many of those yeah. games to where that it took like so much pain to start knocking away that that motivation that I had to go become a combat controller. Like if you if you hit me with some hard shit, you might knock away the first and the second layer of my seven layers of motivation to get in there. And I'll say I got pretty I got close to it. There was there was times when, you know, they put me through the pipeline, and they they test you. They they'll get you to that point. And I I made it to probably that final that final piece, that final layer of motivation, but I was already prepped for that. I was prepped for them to play games with me. So they beat you up for two years is the pipeline. It takes two years from the, the day you start. If you're, if you're moving at a normal rate and you're not failing every single course or getting set back or, or missing whatever happens, you hit two Christmas breaks or something, as long as you're not hitting those speed bumps, you will become a special operations service member within two years and that is unheard of and and it's almost you know a lot of people look i would say a lot of people look down on it in the special operations community because and who do you got how tested is this dude Mm -hmm. is is he really tested two years just i got it he's tough he's a tough motherfucker like pj's had superman school and and combat control had their version of it that they're, they're putting out professional athletes, like they're putting out professional soft athletes. So, you know, for me to go through that whole process, I understood what it was, what I was dealing with. And, and the fact that I can put things into perspective made it way easier for me than it did for the guy standing right next so to me. So you had a, I mean, you were mentally prepped. You had the right attitude. Absolutely. You had your seven layers to work with. As long as I didn't get to layer eight, you were good. So seven is seven is good, man. And anybody who's listening to this that's been in during that time frame, we had the seven layer system also. That yeah. was a cold weather system that you had. Seven oh, so layers that issued you connected. seven layers. So the guys get it. Like there is seven layers to strip away from there of motivation that man, you're gonna have to work harder if you're gonna get me to, to ring the bell to right. get me to quit. So uh, and they get a lot, man. They get so what do they – give us some examples. How do they strip away the layers? How do they pierce through that stuff for you guys? So it's it's definitely – there is an eliminator that I would call it, the eliminator being the water, right? So the water is a really, really big part of our, our culture when it comes to 
culture of screening, of screening a warrior, right? And I think they, they did this well. And I think they, they used lessons learned from, from 18 series guys, from SF guys going through CDQC, the combat diver qualification course. So the water is the great equalizer. And that, that weeded out every single possible wavering person that did not have a hundred percent commitment to what that job was. So if they were on the edge, the water weeded them out. The water got, uh, and there was plenty of opportunities to get them in other in other parts of our training. So there's, it, you have combat control school and air traffic control school uh, that are in the beginning of combat control training. So you go through a two week long screening, and then your next thing that you go to is airborne school, and then the next thing you go to is SEER. So all of these things follow in tandem. And they're pretty close. Like you're maybe you're spending a week in garrison, waiting for the next course to start, and then after SEER school, you're going to you're going to combat uh, air traffic control school. And air traffic control school has uh, some combat control instructors there to kind of beat your ass so you don't get soft for combat control school. Because that's, that's an admin course. school, essentially. It is. It is It is the Air Force's course. We go through the same course that a regular air traffic controller in the Air Force goes through. So we have the additional certification of a tower-rated FAA air traffic controller. But it ain't just air traffic right, control so school. I like this. Thing. So, it's like, so you get to go to class and then get hazed a little bit afterwards. Oh, my God. And it's and the hazing... I would say that that was probably some of the worst hazing that I got. Yeah. The, oh, that's hilarious. The instructors there were just, and I don't know if I had just the perfect storm of instructors, but they were medieval. <laughs> they would, they would, they would come in pissed drunk, like in the middle of the night. It'll be one o'clock in the morning and wake us up and just beat the bricks off of us. We would be doing grass and gorilla drills, or we would be doing uh, burpees for hours. And these guys are and they're laughing, and they're, they're laughing, time. and it is, and it's funny now that I look yeah. at it. But you know, when you're going through this, you're being this is the definition. This is legitimate in, hazing in Webster, <laughs> in, in the Webster. This is a, they have yeah. a picture of them yeah. actually just hazing the shit out of us. But I think that's also part of the process is is paying the man. Yeah, and and every instructor wants to do it. Because they have this like desire, they went through it, but it also means something, right? To to put that level of stress on somebody is motivated by that instructor wanting to make sure that he's setting his brother up, that he just left his unit, his organization, that he's not sending a liability to. Are these guys former combat controllers yes. or current? So they're yes, they are coming back to be instructors. Yeah, and I know we had talked about getting into this a little bit later, but I think it's a good point to connect with why it's so important for those guys, the instructors, to be invested in hazing the shit out of you and making sure you're qualified. Because who are these guys when you do become officially combat controller? Who are you working with? Why is it such a big deal? So. They they're doing it for two reasons. They're gonna get us another assignment after they're done with that instructor billet. After they're done doing their, you know, you guys have your ground tour. Um, after they're done doing their garrison role, they're going back to a team. They're gonna go back to a special tactics team, and they're probably gonna be on team with you. So that's the first reason is they're gonna see you again, and either you're gonna be some dickhead that he's got to pick up the sock for, um, or you're gonna be somebody that he can rely on because he's, he's trained you. He's trained you through it. So 
And for the, I'm speaking in general terms. It, this is what I'd like to think these guys, this is their thought process, right? When I'm going through the trade and I'm looking at it from this point of view now, I think this is where their motivation is because I have that. I felt that in my last couple of years as, as an instructor in, in my position. So these guys do it for that reason is one of them. And then the second reason is they know that when you go to do your job, because now it's post 9-11, right. now they know shit's gotten real. And they have buddies that have already been out the door. You're talking two months. Two months after the planes hit the towers, we had combat controllers fighting Taliban. And they, and they were getting in some of the thickest fighting when I, that Afghanistan had to offer. These guys were the first people in there and just decimating people by the thousands. Combat controllers were just carpet bombing like wholesale ass whooping right out the gate. So now the instructors knew this. They knew that you were going to graduate and you were going to war. So there was another, I guess, urgency for them to make sure that when these guys left training, it was one person. That one trainee that he trained is going to attach to a team. He's going to go as a singleton. So now you have the reputation of all of combat control in the special tactics community. You want to make sure you're providing a A-plus stand-up character dude uh, attached to a team of a bunch of pipe hitters. Like these guys are, you know, the, the Army's finest going in. And you want to make sure that those guys are, that they are so trained that Nothing, nothing can surprise them. Like, and, and I'll and I'll compare it to the pipeline. Like the first stress that I saw, the first war that I saw, I really took a step back and I and I and I got put back in that that parasympathetic, you know, feeling of when you're in training and you're just getting beat down. Like I couldn't be phased by what was going on around me, and I and that is the motivation of these instructors is they want to make sure that. They inoculate you, that you are so familiar with this area, this stressful state, this this unhealthy, unnatural for any human being. They want to make sure this ain't your first time. So they want that uncomfort zone to become your comfort zone. Exactly. Where you are comfortable being uncomfortable. Perfect. Where it's not even a big deal. Perfect. Where you're an underreactor to bullets flying by. Like, oh, no big deal. Yeah. That that flips the switch for you because that's what it... And that's what it's designed to do is they want that to be the mechanism. Once things start getting haywire and you've seen it, you're, I would say that, you know, the fighter community is wired that way too, that when the shit hits the fan, there's a group of people that just turn towards the chaos, like their eyes go towards it and they start problem solving. So I think they're trying to find out who's got that metric, foster it, build it to prepare that individual to go do that with a group of high functioning individuals that have already been a team for years. Right. That, that's the other thing. Like combat control is a job that puts a sister service member from the air force attached to the most elite infantry in the army. Who are these guys? So these guys, in this capacity, it's uh, Special Forces ODA, Operational Detachment Alpha, were some of the first guys into Afghanistan. The first guys, you've you seen movies, you've read stories, Triple Nickel going in. They had combat controllers with them. Those weren't SF dudes dropping bombs. Right. Those were combat controllers aligned 
with ODAs dropping bombs. So to paint the picture, so this is I, I, it's fun because you got a, a solo Air Force dude, you know, and everybody makes fun of the Air Force just for fun. Oh yeah, you know, with so attachments. So these are Green Berets, these are Delta guys, combination, you know, mix and match, but Army SF guys. Right. Right. And yeah, there's a lot of books about uh, that initial into Afghanistan, and, and there's a, a really good one. It's twelve strong, which yeah. is actually really good. So that's a unique dynamic. His solo Air Force softy, you know, combat controller who's got to he's got to be attached to a team that's likely been together for years. Yeah, that's legit and a challenge. It is. I would say that's probably like interpersonal interpersonal communication and group dynamics is something that none of these instructors that I was going through, <laughs> none of these fucking idiots yeah. knew anything about that. But ultimately, that's what you're trying to make sure that these guys are. That they're not social claymores, that they're that these guys are adaptable, that these guys are relatable, that these guys have charisma, and that they can go on a team. And and my goal, and I've communicated this, you know, when I was in a in an influential position and, and I was talking to some junior guys, and I would tell them, I, I said, Hey, you should if somebody that is not part of that SF team walks over to that team and they start communicating with that team and they see you, they should not see an Air Force dude. They should never, ever think that there is some other person part of that team. You should you should be able to blend in with that team enough to where an outsider would be like, oh, that's just another army dude. Like right. that should be your goal. Like if you're trying to do anything other than that, you're creating a target for yourself. Got it. And you're taking away from what the team is supposed to do. The team is is functioning only because it's a team. If you try to be the singleton that like is standing out and doing something different, and there's all sorts of people that, that do that, I, I would tell the guys that I had influence over, do the opposite, man. You should be working your ass off to be part of that team, to blend in with what they're doing. And in order to do that, you better be switched the fuck on and know soldiering skills. You better know how those guys function. You better know how they maneuver. So that's a you know that's a specific culture, and not to cut you off, apologies, yeah. but no. that's a to, to anchor down on that for a second. That is a very unique culture. So talk a little bit about just the culture of the combat controller, you know, through the training and how it preps you to be that solo air force dude that walks up to this unit you're attached to these heavy pipe hitters and where you can roll up and be like, yo, what's up, America? And they're like, hey, welcome aboard, bro. Yeah. Ha, talk about the culture for a minute. I think the way that they prepare you, the way that they kind of help you define that culture is by putting you through training with these guys, right? So at some point, I'm going to meet up with SEALs and SF guys throughout my pipeline. I'm going to meet them just like they're going through their pipeline. I got SF guys and Rangers and SEALs that... I went through airborne school with and, and ranger school with and a military freefall with and combat diver school with. So I'm, I'm starting to get a glimpse of these guys and I'm seeing how they act. And, and that's important throughout the pipeline. You have your instructors that are kind of showing you how to act and, and what the culture is like. But then you're getting hit within in a very formative part of your career when you're getting your ass whooped. So like you're already in the state of like continuous learning. You're like a sponge. And then you see these salty ass SF guys and salty ass SEALs that had to fucking re-enlist 
to get into military freefall school. And here's some needle dick Air Force dude who's 20 years old and he's already at freefall school. So, so I think that's, that's the first time that they see it where they're like, oh shit, I haven't done anything. Like combat controllers and PJs think that their shit don't stink when they're going through the pipeline. They're like, I'm the biggest dick player that anybody's ever going to see until they actually see a big dick player. And then, and then they, and it starts to check them a little bit. Yeah, a little humble pie. It does. It's humble pie. And I think that's the first glimpse of it. And then to be hit with that at a time where you're so influ- easily influenced, I think that starts to build the culture. And now you start to, now you now you go to airborne school and you come back and I remember stories of getting chewed out by Marine gunnery sergeants and like SF guys and SEALs that were in my class, like with just watching some of the funny shit or dumb shit or cool shit that they do. And I take that back with me as I'm waiting for my next course. And then I go to the, another course after that. And then you'd see it again. So you, you're building this culture. And I think it's fostered by the instructors also. They're okay. coaching it the whole time. They're they're trying to develop that that ability to that adaptability, that that uh, that likability, that coachability, that ability to blend. Like they're doing that subconsciously. They yeah. know that it's important. Um, and I think that overall end product, generally speaking, is a dude that can adapt to any team. He can really, really blend in with any team. Now, you got the guys that you know grew up, grew up homeschooled or whatever. Or, you know they, you know they they just weren't your social hand grenades. Your social hand yeah. grenades. You got those guys too. But for the most part, you're dealing with a highly confident, confident dude who can do a very, very unique job that everybody knows. I don't care how much you'd like to make fun of the Air Force. If anybody's been in the shit before. They knew that they looked towards that JTAC oh, yeah. to get them out of yep. whatever problems. And you can talk all the shit you want about Air Force, about Navy, about Army, about Marine Corps. But when the shit hits the fan, all that goes out the window. Oh, yeah. It doesn't fucking matter what uniform you wear, but <laughs> just, just kill, kill them. those guys, yeah, man. Please. Put a bomb on that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think that there's that's instant credibility. If you, if you're lucky enough, I'll call it lucky enough to get put in that position. But until that point, you better be a dude that can just gain friends and, and blend in by just being one of the dudes. You gotta be a dude you can drink a beer with. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's it, man. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. Again, this is just, you know, working with guys, different Marines, things like that, that you're like, this dude is the best pilot on the planet. This guy is a ninja. He remembers everything from the SOP and all the tactics and rah, rah, but you can't take this guy out to have a beer because he's an absolute hand grenade. And I, I think that's so important too. And I don't, who knows how you really, it's so hard to screen for that. Right. It's so hard to select for that besides, you know, selecting for character. I think, uh, the talent war, Mike Sorelli, uh, and I can't, I can't remember the other, uh, the other author, they, they put out the talent war and it, and it highlights that, that soft has, They've developed their selection and assessment criteria enough to identify that you. it's so important to select for character. character. Like, you need dudes that are just likable, that you can go shoot the shit with, that you can trust. Like, ultimately, that dude is going to have to do some some nonviolent crimes, some, some misdemeanors, and they got to be able to trust that dude. Like, 
can you can we trust you to do some dirt? Like we're gonna have to get ugly yeah. here, and it's very difficult to screen for that. But now that's that's something that uh, you mentioned character, and again some free book plugs for Mike Sorelli. And yeah, Daniel yeah, Moore. yeah. And uh, also we had talked about the other book, uh, shit, last week. A legacy about the New Zealand All Blacks. Yes, How yes. I looked that up, and, and I remember, awesome I remember book. it before, but I looked at it after you started talking about it. It has there's so many similarities to what you're talking about. How they build their culture, and it's very much a warrior culture in New Zealand. And now they talk about their essentially their motto when it comes to recruiting players is better people make better All Blacks. Yeah. Hire for character. Obviously, got to have your your base talent. You know. Hire for character and then teach the skills. Yeah. So that's, dude, a great segue into kind of the, and the next question I've got is going through CCT training and all that, and then getting a chance via schools to interact with SEALs, uh, other SF guys. Did you notice uh, any similar personality types? Was there anything that you saw that was kind of a, a trend across the board? Oh, yeah. Before I forget to mention it, George Randall is the other author. Um, I drew a blank there, but Mike's early and George Randall. But going to your question, I, I do recognize, that's a good question. I do recognize similar traits in, in the community, and I'll call the special operations community, is the closest thing that I can say is just the, the, the varsity, the varsity sports team. You know, it's, they're not not necessarily to say that there's you know the the jocks, but that camaraderie. They, there's a there's a brotherhood that a lot of people can familiarize themselves with that that can relate with, and I think you start to see that early in your career. You start to see, you know, some of these guys that are going to these schools with you that are there with one of their compadres, one of their brothers, and the bond that they have. I think you that's clear as day. And, and I, that's so important. I think that that's the foundation, like the relationship there is the foundation of what makes spec ops dudes so good at dealing with the problems that they deal with is like the bond that they have with the guy that's in the suck with them right next to him. It, it'll get them to do exactly what needs to be done that nobody thinks can be done because it's not possible. You can't. There's nothing in the procedure and the doctrine or in the in the technique that says that you should be able to do this, but guys pull through because they have this this bond with each other, and you see it in the very beginning. Like the bond is 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 forged in in sweat, like, and then it's and then it's hardened. Like you, you it's going through the mold and and it's taking form, but it's it's hardened in war. Like that's where it actually becomes. Like now you can see it. Now you now you understand. Oh, this is what this thing is that you've been building for your entire career up until the shit hits the fan. And I would I would say that that was very very influential on me to see the first team that I dealt with that I was confronted with, and just to see the way that they carry themselves, like the jocks and you know the varsity the varsity. Uh, athletes in in school just holding their head up and just knowing that they can wreck shop and it's it's bravado it's it's their demeanor but i think that's it it goes all the way across the spectrum from navy to army to marine corps to air force every single special ops branch shares that they know what that that brotherhood is 
who gives a fuck what the mission is? Who gives a fuck what, like, however dumb things are getting, it doesn't matter when you got those guys next to you that, man, they'll, you'll, you'll go through anything with those dudes. Mm-hmm. That's what you remember. And yeah, that, that's a good question. You, you kind of caught me off guard. With no, that you part. mentioned, you know, you mentioned likability. Mm-hmm. So you got to be a dude people want to drink a beer with. Mm-hmm. Or at least are willing to drink a beer with. Maybe mm-hmm. they don't want to, but they're like, ah, Eric, show up. he's okay. <laughs> we'll drink a beer with this guy. You know, he's not bad. But also interpersonal, being able to communicate. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the awkward social hand grenade when it comes to, and I can't even imagine, like, you know, your tactical scenario on the ground where you got a dude who is a total weirdo. No, you want the guy that can speak English and talk to you and be able to relate, and he's one of your bros and that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, you totally answered. That that's awesome. That's something I noticed. And you mentioned the jocks. I noticed one thing and it, it took uh, some obvious examples to figure out that a lot of the best guys I flew with were prior athletes. You know, we had guys who were divisional All-American wrestlers from the Naval Academy and all over the place. We had guys who were just super talented in various sports, but they carried themselves a certain way. They had played on a team of some sort. So they had the interaction, but interpersonal capabilities. They yeah. could shoot the shit. They could give a brief. They could take a debrief. You know, they could... You could talk about tactics and all that stuff, you know, that type of thing. And it's funny because some of the guys that were the social hand grenades end up getting call signs very similar <laughs> to, you know, so, social hand grenade. I would um, like to hear a study on that. Yeah, there's, you, there's so much dude, legitimacy it to call, that. It, dude, the call signs they give you uh, are very similar. But that was something the guys who had an athletic background, not all the time, but a good percentage of the time, they had the mental ability, the social ability the team interaction experience where when it came time for any type of, you know, any mission or anything like that, it wasn't new to them. And they right. understood the the tempo and kind of the the stress level of like a championship game. That's the closest thing I can compare yeah. it to. Like a championship game, hey, we're getting ready to prep for a mission. You know, you know the tension's up, you got that kind of butterfly feeling. Absolutely. We're flying into this location. Mm-hmm. Here's the JTAC. So the guys who had experienced that, I noticed, performed better. Yeah. Some of the guys who maybe didn't perform as well were sometimes guys that just didn't have that experience as a team player back in the day growing up in college or high school or, you know, whatever. Uh, so it's it's an interesting answer is that these guys carry themselves with a different charisma. Yeah. You know, I think, thing. And I think it goes into the fact, it, highlighting what you're saying, but I think it's the fact that they're tested. Their metal is tested, right? Yeah. And I think they're going through, they're developing their warrior. They're tapping into their warrior nature. Like it's in every single man. I don't care what what society wants to say today about, you know, the man, um, a male person has it ingrained in them to be a warrior. Now, it, it comes out at different points when it's required and some people don't put themselves in a position to bring that out. They don't chase, they don't have a desire to figure out what they're really cut from. And I think athletes who perform at a high level are chasing that. And and anybody who's been part of any sort of championship game or been in a nasty ass fight, they know what that feeling is. That 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 internal desire, that internal warrior. I think Jordan Peterson says something about it too, about like it is the hero's journey, right? That every single man goes through that 
they chase it. And I think athletes are the easy button to select from for special operations because they carry themselves that way. Now we're getting a little bit smarter about our, our selection and screening process. Now they're thinking individuals. Thinking individuals. So you're a thinking athlete. But that takes a little bit more screening right. because we're not familiar with, we weren't familiar with selecting the geek, the guy who's just a fucking nerd. But these guys, now we have nerds on the battlefield that are 10 times more deadly than the linebacker or the all-state wrestling champion. Like that, that, there is so much potential out there, but that's something that now we're just barely tapping into. But that's what special ops has selected for so long. And that's who gravitated towards it is the athletes, the dudes that already knew they were read into the program. Like, this is it. This is what it means to live for something like to, to, to know what you're capable of and to be tested, really tested. Mm -hmm. Like, you're going to fucking die unless you switch it on and you fin harder or you shoot better or you like get your composure, take a breath and then send that nine line and smoke those yeah. dudes. And be like, able to communicate, be able to think, problem solve all simultaneously yeah. while shit's hitting the fan. Yeah. Uh, dude, totally. So quick, quick sidebar story about uh, I got to play blackjack with a buddy of mine uh, and his brother who's a seal. So we were playing blackjack out in... Gosh, the golden acorn. I snuck off base and went to play, went to the casino with, with my buddies. Anyway, so we're, we're playing blackjack, and he's playing all five hands by himself. And I'm like, all right, cool. I can count to 21. I know an ace and a king is a good thing. Yeah, I'm pretty elementary blackjack. Yeah, I'm professional. He's, he's playing five hands. And he's, I'm watching him. So there's, I think, six seats. He's got one, one seat, but the dealer's letting him play five hands. And I'm like, I don't know, I can't do that much math all at once. But he's hitting, you know, stay, push, like all this, and he's crushing the table. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just catching up. I'm, I'm literally getting the scraps, and I'm, I'm making money over here, not because I'm doing what's right, because he's playing all the numbers for all five hands at the same time yeah. based on the odds. Zero emotion. He's playing blackjack traditionally how you're supposed to play. And he's cleaning up. And I was like, okay. And I just figured, I'm like, I'm just, whatever he says to do, I'm just going to do and did we walk away there? We were up significantly. But it was really cool because I was like, this dude's a mental ninja. And he's he's above average smart on any scale. But that was something we had talked about because he was like, yeah, man, you know, the guys I work with, he's like, yeah, we're a bunch of meatheads. But we're also thinking meatheads. That's yeah. how he described it. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's so important now. And I think there was a culture shift as I think the war ramped. It surged. And then after it surged, you had, this was like 2009 through 2011 timeframe. You started, like, dudes started to become not jaded by war anymore and got it. Like, yeah, this is, this is who we need. This is who we need to do the job. But we're, our lessons learned are telling us that we need somebody who's more resilient and somebody who can you know can be a critical thinker so some of these other things started becoming observed like they started realizing that okay let's let's add on to this so the pipeline's been great about this and it's and it's changed it's adapted it's evolved um it's revolutionized because it has to like self has to do that it keeps on it has to adapt and now the screening process, it's still two years long, but it looks so much different now. 
it's so much different. And the Air Force is actually starting to realize the value of a Air Force ground-centric special warfare airman. Somebody who understands the Air Force, but the Air Force is starting to value that piece of it. They kind of just like, we never really, we never really, you know, got away from the Army. You know, we, we evolved from the Army. You know, we evolved from the Army Air Corps, but we never really like took whatever piece that we learned from them and adopted it with what we were doing. We just took the air component, and this is my opinion on the matter, and became really, really good at that and thought the Army's got it, and they do, but you need to put a little bit of emphasis on what's going on on the ground. Mm -hmm. If you really want to project air power, the only way to do that is to have somebody on the ground who's competent. Who can speak the language. Who can speak the language yeah. and can deconflict assets and put, and put, you know, the pilot, if the pilot cannot see the target or the pilot knows that there's friendlies around, there has to be somebody competent on the ground who can explain what the fuck is going on and yep. make sense of it. Try to figure out a ground picture from 20,000 feet in the air without talking to somebody competent on the ground, and you better have a switched-on pilot yeah, or a ball-and-ass sensor yeah. that you can see what's going on down there. So I think they're starting to – they realized that and started to implement that into the training process, into the selection process. And you're getting, you're getting a wide array of people now. You're getting dudes like, I remember getting dudes on, on my team and just looking at them and laughing and being like, what are you? You look, you're, you, you dress like an idiot. You don't look like you're physically able to handle anything. And you say dumb shit. And then you get this guy on the range and he is killing it. Yeah. Or the guy is a sharpshooter. Right. Or the dude can like, it's just unassuming. And I love seeing that. It's like, it's, a, it's adapted to the point to where soft is now, you can't pick these dudes out. You can't pick them out of a, out of a lineup of, you know, just some regular dude. Mm -hmm. These got everybody. That's looks, dangerous. It is dangerous. is dangerous. And that is a lethal, that's a lethal warrior right there. Somebody who, he's not the first person that somebody is going to say, I'm going to take that dude down first. He's blending in. He's doing his job. And he is deadly. And, and combat control, I'm, I'm telling you, and, and JTACs in general, they are the modern day cavalry, right? It's, it's the guy on horseback when nobody was riding horseback and just slaying people, like people that used to run around with spears and, and, and swords, and they thought they were the shit. And now here comes this 2,000-pound creature, or not 2,000-pound, but here comes this massive creature, and the dude is, you know, 10 feet in the air, and he's swinging the sword and just decimating everybody. You have a modern-day cavalry that is now on the battlefield, and it is the odds are so much in our favor when you have clear skies and a competent JTAC, the odds are so much in our favor. So talk talk a little bit about that. So what is at your disposal? So you mentioned, I mean, you're the cavalry. And when things are hitting the fan, they look at you and they're like, Eric, blow up that building. Stop those guys from shooting us. You know, they, are, they look at you like, dude, why is that building still standing? They're like, dude, make that go away. Uh, all right, so let, into the control side, so a little bit. So you finish up combat controller school. Was your first control as a TACP or when you got into CCT? When I got into CCT, okay. I, I, I was actually in training um, 
I just made it out of training when 9-11 happened. So 2001, I was finishing up training and I was fucking chasing war. I was chasing it, right? And I was assigned at an overseas unit in Hawaii and my, my unit was not deploying. It was the 25th Infantry Division uh, Light Infantry Unit. So I wanted a piece of it. I had buddies that were going in it and it was you know just after the attacks and I was in a three-year assignment at an overseas unit that was not needed in the fight yet. The conventional infantry was not asked, tasked to go. So I did everything I could do by volunteering for every possible school so I could so get you're, to. So you're TACP right now? Yes. Okay, so you're in Hawaii, three orders TACP, so you're going to go to school, get all your quals, yes. and make your case to get into CCT. It, well, my, my original function of all these schools was to get into the special ops of the TACP job. All right. So those guys were in the fight. And I thought that that was my fastest way of getting there was just hurry up, get a bunch of schools, volunteer for the special option in TACP, and then go out and go fuck people up. The only thing I wanted to do was to go, it was, there was a ranger assignment. So I wanted to go work with the rangers, 75th Ranger Regiment, and specifically 1st Battalion, because my boss from Hawaii just got orders over there. So I called him up. I was like, hey man, I got my tab. I'm, I'm still motivated. He says, drop a package, come down here. We could use you. So uh, I finally got orders out of Hawaii. And as soon as I got, I put myself in Georgia at a heavy mechanized unit. That was the closest to the first Ranger Battalion. They were in Savannah. So I get to the conventional armored unit. And the day I get there, I check in with the, uh, with the senior enlisted. And I said, hey, I'm here. Well, uh, you know, thank you for letting me, uh, you know, let me have a position here. But my desire is to get into the fight right now. And I, in, in the capacity of working with the Rangers, they would not let me go. They said I needed to stay at that unit. They would not release me to go. And I warned them. I said, if you don't release me, then I'm going to retrain. And that was the function. That's what pushed me into combat control was the armored unit that just came back from an 18-month rotation oh, in Iraq. Jeez. <laughs> so I knew I didn't want to do that, and it forced my hand. And by doing that, it built like two layers of motivation for me. The, the motivation to where I could not go back to that unit. There's no way, because I would not be in the fight that I was looking for. I, I, was, I wanted that intimate fight. I wanted something to do with what had happened and I wanted to be able to look at it, like to feel it, to, to be able to be as close as possible to who I felt was responsible. So you're talking specifically 9-11. 9-11. Right. And, and, and that was the motivating factor for getting into the fight, for training the way that I was training and then ultimately retraining into combat control, but knowing that I couldn't go back to TACP. That wasn't an option for me anymore. So it gave me two layers extra of motivation to when this when it got really so you're hard building up to your seven layers. You <laughs> yeah, got two more. Yeah. Thanks, guys. And I definitely made it to that layer of motivation okay. during the pipeline. But that's that's what got me to the point to make the decision to retrain into combat control. But the whole desire, the whole time, once I knew who my enemy was was just to get in the fight and be with the hardest hitting motherfuckers. And Ranger Battalion rolls hard. Mm -hmm. Those dudes roll like, 
they it could be a company of of rangers and they're fighting as a brigade like these guys are bringing so much firepower to a fight to where they're fighting like it's 10 to 1 like for one ranger the equivalent of 10 regular infantry firepower now that's making a general statement but these dudes roll so heavy to where when there's a fight it's overwhelming firepower nice so i'm chasing that i want it i yeah. know what it looks like i know what it tastes like so i chased it and i got i got the stiff arm i got the heisman I gave you the heisman <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i and i knew the next step was you know throwing throwing my hat like put and going right back to that stress thing again that i was talking about like chasing this thing that I know is going to test me because it's going to it's going to give me the outcome that I want. It's so going to get to the slay place. dragons. I wanted to yeah. I wanted to I wanted to control dragons. Yeah. I wanted to be riding on a dragon <laughs> and just breathing fire all over it. Like oh, that's awesome. I, I wanted that capability, um, and I got it. I got it. I actually. So I just get it. So you, you tell was it your sergeant major that you tell? Hey man, I need to get in the fight. And if I can't. I got to go elsewhere. Yeah. See? And he was the first the first person that I had to go through. And then I had to work through Air Force headquarters staff to retrain into another job. You have to submit an application to retrain. And then I went through the screening process with the combat control screening section that screens every single retrainee. They're looking at everybody and they're reviewing your, your performance reports and they're determining do we even want to look at this? I mean, it guy? takes a while, right? This it, isn't yeah. overnight. So, yeah. how long is the process from when you tell your sergeant major, "Hey, I got to go elsewhere"? Five grueling months. Oh, dude! It was. And you still got to go to work. <laughs> Have you got a Saturday duty? <laughs> hey, how about this guy? As a matter of fact, I got sent to probably four JRTCs, and that's like the joint readiness training exercise that absolutely is like unbearably <laughs> miserable. It's army life in the field. Yeah. Major combat operations. You got SAR majors yelling at you for not wearing PT belts, and you're running into Constantina wire and getting poison ivy. So I, I, I think I logged about three or four JROTCs nice. during that time frame. But yeah, it was a long process for me to finally make it into the pipeline, to finally say okay to start school to start, and and that is a two year. Timeline from 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 getting to Texas and signing in to my first training detachment is two years. Holy cow! So you, I mean, you know, at a minimum, you're two years from the fight because you just told your sergeant major, "Hey, I mean, you got two years to go." Yeah, and that's all training. You had mentioned you went to and, and correct me. So you did. You're already TACP complete. Yep. You do. Combat dive school. You do air traffic control school. What other schools do you guys go to as part of the CCT training? So you have to you start off with the indoctrination course, which is two weeks long in Texas, and then you go to SEER school, airborne school, air traffic control school, and then combat control school. And combat control school is where you earn the Scarlet Beret. That is what is up there. That I have a I love me my retirement. Uh, um, Presento, I'm pointing to on the wall, and Susan's looking at it. But the Scarlet <laughs> Beret is what you're awarded when you graduate combat control school, and it's a bright red beret that just stands out like dog balls. Um, <laughs> and so you're awarded the, the beret at that point, but you're only halfway done with the pipeline. So that is what I call basic qualification for combat control, and then you go into advanced qualification, where you're starting to go into the special operations. What do you guys portion. do in basic? Is that your 
you know, talk about that for a minute. Okay. Good question. Um, combat Control's main mission is airfield, uh, airfield seizure establishment control. And also an additional duty that we're paying the bills for right now is uh, JTACery. So um, in order to be a combat controller, uh, you have to be a certified air traffic controller. But along with that, so the primary the primary mission is, I, I call it global access and projecting air power. So global access being how do you get the military force to where they need to get to? I'm talking army, I'm talking all the infrastructure that goes with it for major combat operations and combat control spans all the way back to World War II attached to army elements. We were originally formed out of a Pathfinder organization that was um, part of objective of, of varsity, I think it was. Um, so are you speaking logistics right now? Not So we're not talking controls, bombs on target. It's let's get this unit and all their stuff from A to B. Correct. So... Part of the D-Day invasion. Let's let's go back a yeah, second. Let's, let's, talk 19, let's, let's, yeah, let's talk 1944. So in 1944, combat control teams originated from the Army Pathfinders, a group of service members that would go in forward ahead of the major uh, major combat force, and they would establish a drop zone for the 18th Airborne Corps to employ thousands of troops. Right. So these guys would go in a group of 10 individuals and they, they actually adopted the glider methodology of infill. So they would go in advanced force, just dicks hanging out, like exposed, no backup, no support ahead of the main force. So the job at that point was to go in and mark the drop zone, find an acceptable drop zone that you can get enough soldiers in an in a, a area where they can recover themselves and then mark it with like they had cans that they 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 burn shit inside the cans to mark the drop zone. So that was the original methodology behind combat control. That's where we originated from. When the Air Force broke off and became its own department, then it turned into combat control, where the job was airfield seizure, airfield establishment, and that's where the air traffic control piece comes in, where you need to have somebody who could go advance force into an area, seize an airhead, either build an airhead, build a desert landing strip, or build or, or take over a runway with a small contingent force, market and control aircraft to land. So that was our bread and butter. That was what that is what we are designed to do. We're designed to seize. <laughs> so, so you're, I'm like sitting here baffled at the amount of, you're going through this job description like, are you shitting me? Hey man, I need you to go behind enemy lines and find an airfield. And then with a few of your buddies, I need you to take that airfield. And then I need you to fucking bring in all these aircraft to the airfield and all their stuff, you know, no big deal. And so these guys were, I mean, they're, Utah Beach, Omaha Beach, behind the scenes. Objective Varsity well is, before. is one of the biggest ones. Like that was the that was the 1945 March 24th op Operation Varsity. It was the initial mission. That is part of the initial invasion that 18th Airborne Corps. That everything that you watched of of the Airborne troopers, you know, going in and wrecking shop. The way that they got there was they had to have somebody on the ground that identified an area for them to actually land. They couldn't just, they didn't have the, 
They didn't have the you know overhead platforms yeah, they, that they could capture imagery, yeah, yeah. and they couldn't, they couldn't really capture like the atmospherics of where the enemy forces were. Jeez. So there had to be a group that went in there that had some idea of where they were going into, but actually mark this thing and be able to control these this massive infill of of troops. And the army was smart enough to to realize that. And the Air Force was smart enough to say, we are absolutely going to take this thing and run with it because it is the way, if you think about it, that is how you seize anything. You have to get a bunch of support in there fast. You can have as many pipe hitters as you want in, in an area and they can fight for a little bit, but you better have some reinforcements for those dudes quick. Ricky tick. So they knew that at some point, resources were going to be needed and the best way the fastest way is a runway you we already have the airplanes so we just need to take over a runway and that's where the whole airfield seizure mission set came from so our job in combat control school what we train to is you have an hour so the reason you go to airborne school is you have an hour once you leave the ramp of a c-130 this is this is our standard that we stick to and we beat this time frame on a regular basis, but we could jump out with a group of nine guys and chase a couple motorcycles, throw a couple motorcycles out of the back so you can run up and down the runway. But uh, and I'm and I'm, do, I'm I'm explaining this really quick. There's a lot that goes into this, but the guys jump out of the airplane, they hit the ground, they test the runway. So that's part of the process is you have to test the density of the airfield. Right. You have to actually see if the runway can withstand whatever is going to land there. So you, yeah, you could kick the ground, but that's not really doing diligence. Wow. So you test the density. Once you figure out it's not fouled, it's suitable, then you have to mark it. So you either put lights or you put uh, VS-17 panels up and then you get out your radio <laughs> oh my and you're controlling airplanes landing. And I'll tell you, ridiculous. I'll tell you the amount of responsibility doing this at on. night is absolutely sketchy as hell. Holy shit. So you have to bring in now we call it the train. You're bringing the train in. And if anybody who's ever participated in this thing, it is a ton of responsibility. It is, it'll make you, that is one of the most stressful things you can do is do this mission as an air traffic controller, because you have so many moving parts and, a combat controller needs to be able to think three dimensionally. Like obviously, as a as a air traffic controller, you got to be able to picture this, and then you have to control army people trying their hardest to kill themselves on the runway. Like they're running across an active runway, and there's a hundred thousand pound beast getting ready to land, and you've told them a hundred times, "Don't go on the runway." So like you have your hands full. You're doing a ton of shit, but it is so much responsibility but it also is i understand the significance of it so it's it is a very very incredible part of our job that doesn't have a bunch of attention right now because we're paying the bills right now with just hammering people wholesale just dropping bombs right. all over the place so that is the original mission set Nin so it's 1944 45 1944 was the or 19 yeah 1945 was the actual operation where this that mission set uh, with the actual Army Air Corps Pathfinders 
established, seized an airhead, a drop zone, and coordinated this infill. But from that point on, that became a mission a, a mission set that was required through, you know, throughout Department of Defense. They realized how valuable this this piece was, so it adopted from there and. The Air Force grew into, they, they changed it into the air, airfield control teams, uh, started adopting, and then in uh, 1953 was, I think, when they actually designated it the combat control teams. That's, See, that's, I'm just picturing these these guys back in the day in 44, 45 with the gear they have or, or had and the gear you got. <laughs> And, you know, they're probably like, dude, we're high speed, man. We got a radio and, you know, our M1 or whatever it is they were carrying. And just the I can't imagine. Good luck. I mean, you know, on that mission, you're like, hey, go behind German lines. Pick us a spot to find a bunch of stuff and people. And good luck, bro. We'll talk to you later. Yeah. And, and it then was, now. It, I, I can't imagine doing that job. Like, I, any time. It makes me feel soft. Like we every, we, we talked like, about this. Yeah, talking <laughs> to any old school <laughs> warrior you're like i hesitate saying anything that was yeah. difficult for me but yeah these guys and the main function and I, I i didn't um bring this up the main function of the army pathfinders was to be able to go into the area and project weather also because weather was a huge factor no jump tonight if anybody remembers that yeah. no, jump, no tonight. jump tonight yeah so they needed a ground force that was able to predict the weather and that's another capability is a combat controller is a limited weather observer so we can go in and we have the little balloons the pie ball balloons and 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 uh special reconnaissance or used to be it now special reconnaissance used to be sauti our special operations weather guys that that was their main force like that is a very very important part like right if anybody who is in the air really really is concerned with weather and the army and the marines grunts don't really realize that, but I go on a tangent. So comic controllers will also, they have the ability to forecast weather and send a METAR, a METAR report. Anybody who flies knows what it is. Um, it's, I if you ask, if you get, offer me a million dollars right now, I wouldn't be able to generate one, but it is a limited weather observation for inbound aircraft. So that's another additional capability. But yeah, these guys jumped into fucking D-Day. They jumped into the, or they flew gliders yeah. into German-held territory to set up fire cans and project yeah. weather to land. Maybe, maybe the 18th Airborne Corps was going to actually come in. Like, hopefully they all didn't get shot down and these guys were left flapping. But you want to talk about an unheard of or unknown it's not widely known like no how, never. how did all these guys get to the areas and i know they were all spread out all over the place that that's a whole nother story but how did a bunch of those guys get to where they needed to get to with no navigational aids mm -hmm. there wasn't shit out there yet maybe some maybe some aerial charts that yeah. were like 20 years old 20 year old information on there and or yeah. just like a, you're flying at this bearing for this distance, this time, yeah. ballpark, you yeah. know, and then jump out the door. Yeah. Hope you make it. <laughs> yeah. So um, these guys would fly knowing that the marker was going to be a T, you know, so there was going to be a T marked for the for the projected drop zone. And they're they're steering towards this bearing for a certain distance. And now they're looking for a T. The pilots, oh, that's it. All right. We'll put them out. See you guys. And they're getting shot at now. And that's I mean, how they got black. it done back oh, then. Geez. I can't I'm being that guy on the ground. Like, 
hey, man, you're going to go uh, – we're going to fly you a glider over into German territory, maybe with a few friends. I need you to find a place I can land the rest of the guys. Good luck. H- have at it, man. Hope, hope we talk to you again. I mean, dude, talk about just like, well – See you guys. And I'm so Man. immature now. I, I in think, these days, I, I might have a fuck you on the tip of my tongue if you tell me to do that. Like, there's got to be a better way. Man. Yeah, is this the best plan? This Here's your plan. can. You're going to light on fire. <laughs> Bring some extra matches or a lighter. Uh, and there's 10 of me yeah. and 90,000. Hey, just watch out for Germans. Light this can on fire. <laughs> Don't talk to the Germans. Jeez. But it is it is a great, it's a great mission set. It's a, it's a huge responsibility that Again, in an hour, like a lot of people don't realize jumping out of an airplane is just getting to work. Like you're jumping into an airfield, you got maybe five minutes in the air and then you're hitting the ground like a ton of bricks and you better start moving. You better start moving because you got about 3000 feet of runway to cover to make sure there's nothing on it, survey it, mark it, control it. And that is a bunch of shit to do in an hour. Yeah, I had, an hour. I had no idea you were a qualified geologist. As well as a meteorologist. So, dude, you could, if this whole, you know, business plan doesn't work out, you can go be a weatherman or, you know, go play with some dirt and get paid for it at the science museum. I saw guys eating dirt at some point. That's part of the the LZ assessment is guys would taste the density of the dirt. And you're just going to. You got all my nose. I'm not going to put dirt in my mouth. Right. There, somebody came up with that idea. Yeah, we gotta, you got to eat it. And that was some instructor. <laughs> hey, new guy, you got to eat this dirt. Watch and he's sticker. like, oh, really, sir? Okay, I'll try it. He's got uh, mud coming out of his mouth. Dude, that's, uh, that is insane. I've never, I didn't know the origination of, of CCT and how that, that's, that's badass. And that's insane. And, those guys. And it morphed, right, over the years. And, you know, you had conflicts all over the place. There was, you know, uh, combat controllers or air control teams or Army Pathfinders. The participation in the Korean War, Vietnam War, Grenada, Panama, Gulf War, Operation Gothic Serpent, or more commonly known as um, the Mogadishu um, 93 fight. Iraq, OIF, and OND, Afghanistan, Horn of Africa. There's been major, major participation in all of those events, all from combat controllers. And you're talking about some of the first boots on the ground to like seize airheads, to go in with the advanced forces to identify, is this suitable for resupply, for reinforcements? Can we actually hold this area? And that mission set has been used over and over and over again for plans for major operations. If we are going to go toe-to-toe with a near peer, you better believe we're going to be taking over a runway. And this right. is this is nothing like this is open source information, but we're going to go in there with a bunch of hard motherfuckers to help us out to, to run security while we're bringing in the train of just massive firepower. Got it. So that is, uh, that's a good kind of angle into the, into the next part here. So you got the chance to, to work with some cool units. How many total deployments did you do? In your career? I got 10, 10 under my belt and I started, this is the funny thing, I started in 2007. So it took me, like I said, two years to go through the pipeline. I started in 2005. I didn't get my first deployment until 2007. So you you got in in 99 though? I got in so in 99. So your first eight years? Eight years. You're just training? Just training. No and, deployments. And I'll tell you, I was chasing it. I, ch- I was chasing it as hard as the next guy and... I think that was by design that yeah. I wasn't ready. So when you got there, so you finally get there, 
Who was the first unit you actually went to combat with? I went with a uh, an SF team was my was my first assignment, and it was uh, they were called the SIF, and that, now they're the CRIF. But it was the Commanders and Extremist Force, which is like you have different echelons of special ops, right? You got conventional infantry, you have elite infantry, which is Ranger Regiment, and I'm and I'm doing this not very much justice. Forgive me, my army brethren. And then you have special forces, which is like unconventional warfare, small clandestine operations, guerrilla warfare. And these are Green Berets. Those are Green Berets. And then above that, you have another small contingent of guys that are called the SIF. And the SIF is a commanders and extremist force that's an elite group of SF individuals that go in to support Delta or CAG. So you have Delta and CAG being like the elite of the elite. These are these are the baddest motherfuckers on the planet. And, CAG? And, uh, so CAG is uh, Chuck Norris, if you watch any of his movies. That is... <laughs> I love how you bring, you bring <laughs> Chuck Norris into this. I love it. That's awesome. So uh, CAG is a uh, combat applications group, and they are the elite of the elite of the, of the army. And it is a group of um, it, a group of the army that pretty much develops anything and everything that's new or a better way of fighting. It comes from these guys. Mm-hmm. Like they're testing and evaluating the best like equipment, and they're coming up with the best techniques and procedures that trickle down. And the and the entire military looks to these guys to solve these problems, these complex problems. So it's just, it's an organization that is uh, command, they're held under the Joint Special Operations Command, and they are charged with the Army component of solving complex ground problems. So these guys are, they're your best, most seasoned, trained dudes, and I would call them the very tip of the spear. Right. You, you have the guys that are the most squared away, um, and they were involved in in Mogadishu also. If, if anybody's read Black Hawk Down, uh, those were the guys that went in there to to snatch uh, Farah Hadid uh, out of his nexus, out of his stronghold. So it's a complex problem set that required a very specific capability, and they leveraged these guys to go do it, right? Okay. So right under that element is a group of special forces, highly trained individuals that would go right behind those dudes, and they would back them up. They're, okay. they're trained in clandestine operations, highly trained SF dudes, and my first deployment was with those guys. We went, we were in Missoula, and and I was fortunate enough to do a year, almost a year training with those guys. I lived with them for a year. So in Garrison, I was just a part of them. Like I volunteered for this. It was another, it was another volunteering once I made it to my special tactics unit. Then I volunteer for the next thing. Well, who else? What are the other? How many more levels are there? I mean, you're, is this it? There are other levels and it starts getting jaded and the the mission set starts getting all all wazoo. But from a ground pounder, from somebody who is involved with problems that deal directly with like a military, you know, conflict, you got, that's it. You don't get any better than that. Okay. Those guys. So, or I'm, I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, and so the 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 guys that I was aligned with, the SIF, uh, was a seventh group team. So they were seventh group out of Fort Bragg, 
That's where I was stationed at. So it was easy for me to just go and align with them. And I just lived, trained, and was part of their team. I did everything with them. I did their shooting. I did their jumping. I did everything that they were designed to do. So when I deployed, I knew everything that they were going to do. I was predictable. I could be, and I've done this before. I've been their driver. I've been their navigator. I've been, you know, another gun. I've been a gun every single time we go on ops. Like I'm the third person right behind the reconnaissance element going and climbing. I always climbed like that's things that every time I went on a mission, I was always climbing to get the high ground so I could see the battlefield. So reconnaissance usually climb. So I would climb third dude every single time up on the roof and then sometimes get in a gunfight, mm -hmm. but usually direct an airstrikes from there. But I, I, it, that became my, that became my team. Like that's where it comes to the likability and the, and, and the that's where those personality traits pay off. Yeah. It, because the team, every single one of these dudes was just like you'd imagine like an SF team, a, a group of elite SF guys. They were just some tough ass dudes. And here comes this little air force dude. And I'm the only guy there. So it's like, it took, it didn't take me long to establish credibility because fortunately I had my Ranger tab and there's not a lot of combat controllers with their Ranger tab. And that in the army is like your, I would call it, that's like a degree, right? That is your, uh, for any pilots, that's your patch. That's your weapon school patch, instant credibility in the army. And when they found out that I had a tab and I don't talk about it, it's on my garrison uniform. When they find out about it, it's instant credibility. So it only takes that amount of time, generally speaking, to have credibility with the team. But if you, if they don't know about it, you're going to have to be switched the fuck on and be ready to like pounce on the opportunity to show yourself as an asset mm -hmm. and not a liability. And you can do that. I've done that by being the only person with comps. Yeah. So how, what do they look to? You yeah. Know, they look to you for what? So, they, so when, if you talk about establishing credibility, they're going to rely on you for certain things. Right. And, and for the most part, they relying on me to solve a problem that requires fire support that, that requires ordinance to be delivered into a target at close proximity and friendly forces without fragmenting any of the friendly forces. That's ultimately what they expect from me. But they also know that I'm trained in anything that is in the air. I, I'm controlling all the assets in the air. I'm controlling our helicopters that are bringing us to the target and sending us out of the target. I'm controlling any casualty evacuation. So there are some really, really important things that I'm controlling. And then naturally one part of the job is just being a specialist in communications. Like you have to have working radios. That is a foundation. That's your primary weapon. That's it. That is right. my, that is my primary weapon. And you are trained. That is a foundational thing that we're trained to is have redundant systems and be highly skilled in like troubleshooting and identifying like atmospheric conditions that could be causing your radio to not function well. Like I'm under a so now, okay, so adding to your resume, you know, when you, when you <laughs> geologist, <laughs> meteorologist, I'm a radio operator slash, you know, I don't know, technician, electronics guy, yeah, a guru. Yeah. Like you're a radio like, ninja, a, a radio ninja. And that's, I think that's got me a ton of credibility is just being the guy that can communicate all the time. And communication 
is everything, right? Communication is, it, it is the only thing that actually makes the mission happen. If you're not communicating, nothing's happening. So let's get into, so we talked a little bit about what you do as a combat controller. And just to kind of clarify, CIF, C-I-I-F? It's C-I-F, Commanders in Extremist Force. Commanders in Extremist Force. But now okay. it's, now it's CRIF. So I don't, I don't. Bad numbers. Yeah. These guys specifically, are these guys a combination of Green Berets, Delta, or is it specifically, or is it, it kind of a hybrid? It's, it's a, it's a, it's still a Special Forces team. So you have different teams within Special Forces. You have um, an A team and a B team. ODAs is, are the A team. And that's the ones that you typically see in all the movies and doing the missions. These guys are a group of six to eight individuals on the team that each have a specialty. There's generally one of them, one specialist on an ODA, and each of them do a very unique job that they come together and their main mission set is building like counterinsurgency to go in and train another militia. And that's why these guys are so devastating is they can take a group of six to eight dudes mm -hmm. and they can make a fighting force of 30,000. Like they're trained like that. They can, they're highly trained in training people, um, people that are just, that don't speak English. So all of them are foreign language experts and they can train a force to, to take the initiative that we want them to take. But within that special forces team, you have another detachment of not an ODA and not a B team, the B team being like the more of the garrison headquarters type of team. You have another group of guys and there's not a lot of them. I think there's only like four, four CRIFs. Okay. So there's one CRIF per group. And it, so seventh group had one, one CRIF uh, element that comprised of four teams. So there were four teams of assaulters. Yeah. So one of them was Recky. I ran with Recky. And then the other three were assaulters. Okay. So you, you have you have that at every single group. Got so, it. So it is a specialized group of guys that you can throw a very, very complex problem at that is even higher higher trained than regular sf guys sure i'm tracking yeah so that that's a that's a podcast in itself I yeah feel like that's got some there's some cool stuff there so yeah they do they do a ton of stuff with cag and that's and that's my initial introduction to right. cag that's where i saw oh shit there's another there's layer another to level? this yeah let and, me put my paperwork in yeah, yeah. okay and i remember getting air support taken away one time for a mission that we were doing and we were gonna go roll up some dude in downtown Missoula. There was a bunch of bad dudes in this town. We were doing a night raid. We're doing a gaff, a, a, a ground assault force, and we're driving into this target. And I have, I request air before we step. I tell my commander, what do you want? And he's like, I don't know, just protect us. So I'll grab some attack helicopters so they can escort us into the target. And I'll make sure I have some fast movers overhead, some fighters ready to support actions on. So just in case, some dickheads want to start rolling in at us. I have some heavy firepower that I can smash some vehicles or reinforcements. Yeah. And then I want helicopters back on the way out. So as we're about to step and we're sitting at the gate, my aircraft get taken. They're talking to me on the radio and they're like, hey, we got to go. I'm like, the fuck you do? I request you. <laughs> you, try you, tell my, you try to Bullshit. tell my community. And, uh, and they said, we're being retasked. And I, 
I ran over to my commander and I was like, hey, I'm sorry to tell you, your support just dropped out. And he got mad and I was like, I'm gonna go figure it out. And he's waiting in the vehicle, the convoy sitting. Like you got 40 dudes ready to go fuck somebody up. And I gotta go figure this out. So I think I'm running into the <laughs> Joint Operations Center and I'm mad. And I yell at the fire support officer, what the fuck? Your job is to make sure shit doesn't go sideways once I leave and get in the vehicle. And he's like, sorry, it's going to uniform. It's uh, the call sign is a, is a uniform call sign. And I was like, who the fuck is Who that? are these guys? Who is that? Yeah. And I, I won't go too much further into that, but it took me that experience to be like, oh, okay. We're not the biggest deal. It gave, it gave me an aim point. Yeah. Now I have the next aim point. Got but it. that was the first rotation was with a group of really, really kick-ass elite SF dudes. And I don't think you could get a better a group of guys for me to blend in with. They were all South American uh, experts, so a bunch of Spanish speakers. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem blending in with that environment. And it didn't take me long to prove my credibility with them. Mm-hmm. And I was I was fortunate for that, too. And then I was able to hammer some shit yeah. um, for them on the, on the deployment. So um, that was my first kind of employment but okay but so I, that was so that so that's missoul what year that was 2007 2008 okay so got it so oh four i'm just timeline oh four oh five is fallujah oh three initial invasion so it's ramadi was oh six yeah oh six and then and i mean Baghdad, the heaviest parts of ramadi yeah and ramadi was just i think ramadi was calming down and baghdad was just roaring right roaring and missoula was picking up um and we did some stuff in baghdad also um so what's let's let's talk about the so you're there you're there with these guys what base are you out of like where are you guys where's your where's your father whatever that it was on Missoula. It was in Missoula. They don't have the base anymore. The base is absolutely okay. uh, overran. We gave it up uh, during the after OND New Dawn Operation New Dawn. They turned it over, um, but it was in Missoula. It was at the Missoula right, airport. Got it. Oh no, kid. Yeah, at the airport. Got yeah, it. we used uh, Erbil as one of our diverse. Yeah, you know, yeah. When we were over there. So, all right, man. So this is something we had talked about, but eventually you get a chance to earn your money. We're going to talk about your first control uh, in detail. So before we get into the control itself, like you know you're there, you're in the game, you're with these heavy hitters. Eventually it's going to happen where they're going to look at you and be like, hey, Eric, make that building or those guys go away. And that's where you earn your money. How are you mentally preparing or have you already prepared for this eventual occasion? I don't think I, I, don't, I, don't think I prepared for my first uh, engagement. I, I would like to say I did a bunch of iterations uh, that built up to that event, but it wasn't anything. It didn't look like it. It didn't smell like it. It didn't taste like any of the training that I did. It was a completely different environment. There was variables that I didn't expect to be part of the equation. Although I had trained for certain pieces of that individually. So it was like, it was like a, um, I, I call it a perfect storm for lack of better words, but there were so many different variables going on at the same time that, that made it initially. And when I say initially, it was like for a fraction of a second of an unfamiliar environment. So I think that's where the recognition phases in how you perceive your environment. And as I'm recognizing 
initially what I'm dealing with. It's foreign, but it only takes me, I remember this, it wasn't long. It was like, it, it, it was seconds. Do you remember what it was? I, what that unknown variable was? I want to say it was like 10 seconds because there was a bunch of stuff going on. Like the team sergeant got shot off the roof, almost lost his arm. Another one of my buddies who was in another position got shot in his neck and I just made it to my position. I just made it to my overwatch position. So like I still got my ruck on. I'm I'm completely dusted from the movement because I'm hauling ass under contact, uh, moving into my fighting position. And as soon as I get there, my commander comes up to me and he's like, hey, I need bombs over there right now. And he just points. And, and I haven't been trained for somebody to, I, I had been trained for somebody to point, but not with that sense of urgency. Yeah, like, not with guys getting shot. Not with that close and with that those many variables going right. on in the background. So when he said that, it was like, I heard what he was saying, but I couldn't hear anything else, right? It shut, everything else shut down. And there was a bunch of stuff going on. So I want to say during that time frame of me trying to like, isolate what was going on around me and focus on what he was saying because I knew that was the most important it almost was like what the fuck I'm listening but and this this sounds so fucked up like I, I gotta I all I'm thinking in my head is when he's telling me this I'm gonna drop some bombs here but I got no fucking idea where anybody is at and that's the that's the biggest thing for any JTAC is friendly forces identifying friendly forces and the forward line of troops is constantly moving. Like it never stands still. Somebody's always doing something, either either defying what they should be doing or doing what they're supposed to be doing is shooting and maneuvering. So sometimes guys don't update their position. So this captain comes over and grabs me and he's like yelling in my face, I need you to blow that up now. And I'm listening to him. And then I said, okay. I need to see what you're talking about. So now I need to climb up to where the team sergeant just got shot off the roof. Nice. And I have my, one of my Charlies, it was a Charlie who was on a saw and he jumps up there and he just starts hammering the area. So I can see what he's actually talking about. So he's laying down some cover. He's laying down cover and fire. And now I'm able to get a view of the battle, the battle space. And where he's talking about is only like a football field and a half away from us. And that's pretty fucking close. That's yeah. that's small arms distance. An AK will bust you up from that distance. So it's within danger close is what the is is what the the distance is for what I'm about to put down on this. Is on this day or day or night? This is day. Daytime, all right. So there's somebody who got shot in the neck and I'm upset about it. Like I I this is a friend of mine, uh another controller. And the team got shot off the roof. So I'm a little bit emotional. And then this is my first real, like, and, and I had some employments in Iraq, but it was only direct fire weapons. Like, that's not, to me, that's not, that was an easy day. Like, that's just giving a call for fire and having them put down some some fire and maybe getting somebody, some people to either go back into their house or maybe I, maybe I got them. You never know. Um, so this one is in Afghanistan and as I'm getting a lay of the, the battlefield, I'm passing up over to the, the guy who's overhead, who's doing what initially is to be called 
FAC A, like somebody who's controlling aircraft coming inbound and outbound. What type of aircraft was this? So I believe at this point it was I wanna say I wanna say it was an F fifteen. Okay. I want to say it was an F-15, and it was like, it was a single-seater. So it was a, not a single-seater. It was a single aircraft because I think the other one was already going to refuel. So he was just running fat gay duties. It was a fucked-up situation where I couldn't use that guy. He was tasked with something, and I couldn't, and anybody who knows, like, you don't want to use an F-15 as your go-to for strafing. Like, they have a cannon nose cannon that's just going to put, it's it's not their go-to weapon. Uh, it's an air-to-air designed for an air-to-air, and it's early in the war. So the first aircraft that I have is a B-1 bomber is coming in. He's checking on, and he says he'll be here in, like, seven minutes or something. And I tell the commander, and he's like, all right, like, make it happen. And I don't have time to do, like, you know, a long check-on. I don't have time for him to do a SAR mapping, like, multiple times to do... Synthetic aperture radar is what the B1s will use to do, like to sweeten an area to get to make sure they know where they're dropping. They'll usually go over the area, they'll map it, they'll 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 scan it multiple times to get a real positive picture of the area that I'm I'm talking about. So I have a couple tools in my um, in my rucksack that I brought with me, and one of them was a beacon. So we have this beacon. It's a navigational aid that we use for aircraft in like. IFR conditions. So when they, when pilots can't see and there's clouds and I have this beacon and the aircraft is capable of interrogating it, which certain aircraft are with radar capability, a B-1 is a gunship, an AC-130 is capable of interrogating this thing. So to, just to kind of translate a little bit of that. So when they can't see you or see the target with their sensors, this beacon gives them an ability to locate you. So they have a grid or let long for the friendly position. So they at least know where you guys are. Correct. Is that what you mean? Okay, Correct. Got it. And it is not the preferred method sure. of doing yeah, business yeah. <laughs> to, to have them steer yeah, directly to friendly location. <laughs> right. All right. So, so take, take it away. So I already know that this is not, it's not the preferred method. And then all your training, that's all they harp on you is. Do so not, it's, I mean, there's clouds overhead. It's IFR. Well, no, there's not, there's no clouds overhead. The, but the B1 is so far away that he's got, he's flying with like a Gen 1 pod. Right. A, a very early ability to zoom in on the target area his his camera is degraded to say the least so this is like a is this like an atari quality yeah pod? it's like so this is atari bit, 1984 it's an 8-bit it. at best and that's <laughs> if he's getting closer to the target so okay i think he's seven minutes away and i have direct communication with him i you know i, I have an elevated position i got a, a strong radio and i start telling him i'm like hey we're troops in contact and i need this to be an initial pass of employment and he's like all right and i said you know interrogate this and i was running like one golf is my code that i run and so i said interrogate one golf and he says i got gotcha. you and i know that he now has an area and i can build a map off of it so what i did was like a polar plot i had him go from that known point and i gave him a bearing and a distance and i said you know go 170 degrees for 150 meters and we're going to be shooting it with mortars and i had a mortar team with me also so that same charlie is just hanging rounds at the same time and i'm telling him like get get a bunch of rounds ready because what's I, he driving 60 mortars six, 60 uh 60 millimeter mortars so he's he preps all these rounds and then when i tell him 
I said, start hanging them and they're just hanging rounds. And it's making a radar significant image now for the B1. So now it's confirmatory. Now he knows where friendlies are and he knows where the general location was. And we were getting hammered by this tree line. And I, I, as I'm describing it, I have a picture in my I Love Me room that's just a massive uh, mushroom cloud <clears throat> that this thing formed. So he starts seeing 60 millimeter impacts. He starts seeing radar significant things going on in his sensor in his 8-bit Atari graphics that, that's giving him at least a, we call it a It's like an fuzzy. edgy sketch. Yeah. 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 So now he's like, okay, I'm pretty sure this is what these dudes are talking about. And now he has confirmatory friendly location and enemy location. So now it's go to work time and you pass the other critical pieces of the So is that via nine line or is it kind of a hybrid at this point? So at, so at this point I did the I did the talk on, I did the essentially what ended up being a bomb on coordinate because it's like I'm passing him <coughs> I'm sorry, bomb on target, but he's employing um a I'm going way far into tactics here, but he's employing GPS guided bombs onto an area that I am not providing him grid coordinates. He's for. generating the grids via what you're providing with yes. the mortar rounds and yes. the, the polar plot off your beacon. So this is some gnarly cast right now. It's, this it, is, and that's what I'm saying. Like it went so far, far outside and right out of the goalposts, like so far out of what was norm and what you were trained for and what I'm trained for. But the B1, and we talked about this before about like establishing credibility and establishing a cadence and a demeanor that the pilot can pick up on. That he is, he knows, he's confident that I know what I'm talking about and he can start doing some squirrely shit too because I guarantee this was his first time employing. And I talked to him after this flight also and I ended up Winchestering him so we got rid of all his bombs. Like, and, and you're talking about 40 plus bombs. Uh, yeah, it's a lot for a B1. So the initial weaponeering choice, I told him what was happening. I said, we are getting overwhelming firepower coming from this area. And what it is, is it's a tree line and it's oriented east to west. So I give him a description. He can pick out something of what I'm talking about. And he sees my, my uh, mortar impacts. And I said, from that point, I need a string of three Using that as a steer point, I need one to the east and to the west of it. So he's going to drop a string of three in 50 meter increments along the tree line. So, and this is on his initial pass. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm sending this information via nine line. I'm getting everything prepped, and now I'm reaching like the two minute mark. And I think I have a picture. I still have a picture of me looking up in the air after he's after he employed. But I remember like everything going super quiet like there was so much going on but as soon as that as soon as that dialogue started passing as soon as i had confirmatory comms with the b1 everything got super calm it was the most relaxed that i've ever felt in my life and it was like this euphoric state of clarity to where i i could i could bring to bear everything within my creative power to solve this problem and it was like there was no external stress. I had nothing that was bothering me. I had mortars going. I had competent dudes around me, hammer doing business. I felt good about what I just passed, and I still had time to tell the pilot, "Hey, I'm about to. I'm going to crush this area, and it's going to hurt us. Like it's gonna fuck us up." And he's like, "Do it. Like he owns the bombs. 
I just I tell him he tells me what he wants done and then I'm gonna make it happen. And you figure out the problem. And I figure out the problem. So now we're at the like the two minute mark and I have enough time to jump on another frequency, my team frequency, my army team. Now I'm communicating with everybody close to me and in our battle position. So I'm able to get over the radio and tell tell them, hey, we're about to hammer this thing and I need everybody to take cover. Like when I say cover, you need overhead cover too. It's not just lot, it, not just direct cover from fragmentation, but from like overhead fragmentation. We're that close. Like there's going to be shit coming down on us. And I remember this, like when those bombs came down and this is my first real fucking bomb. Yeah. I never dropped a real bomb before this. I just dropped 500 pound inert bombs and never. So what are, all right, guys, we got to, I got to pick this apart a little yeah, more because yeah. this is badass, man. So the geometry from you to the target, is it parallel with like from, from where you are, talk about which way the B1 is coming from. Is he coming overhead? Is he coming from left to right, right to left? So, so he's coming from, from west, from east to west. Okay. So he's and east I'm to north, west. And I'm north. So you're target. looking south. I'm looking you're south. You're looking south. He's coming from your left to right. Yes. And he's dropping a string. And which way did the tree line the, the tree line ran, ran east west. So perfect. So he's yeah. going to drop that string of and and that was the other thing that I set up for him. I had enough time to set his geometry because yeah. he's far enough out. I didn't and I was lucky for this that I didn't have to spin him to right. put him in a more advantageous position, and they can still employ from that altitude pretty much any direction. So he's in the tw- how high is? He? I think he's like twenty one thousand. And what bombs is he dropping? So he's dropping five hundred pound GPS guided bombs, also known as GB thirty eights that have an explosive weight of like 330 pounds. And it's equivalent <clears throat> It's equivalent to, um, I would say, uh, I'm trying to think of the blast pattern and it's, it's, gonna, it's going to frag and kill everything within at least a 200 meter. So you're 250 meters away? 150 meters yeah. away and I have a wall in front of me. I have a mud wall that's about eight inches thick. Okay. Yeah. And that thing will stop a fucking <laughs> nuclear bomb. <laughs> so right, so I feel I feel comfortable behind this yeah. wall. This wall's been getting peppered the whole the whole day by AK fire. So we're behind that wall, but that's just fragmentation cover. Yeah. Blast, Dude, the blast is gonna is... fuck you up. And okay. Dude, this is gnarly man. So, so it's funny when So you, go, you just get on the horn with your team. Hey fellas, take cover. Like overhead like we need legit cover. You're inside of two minutes. So at this point, dude, he's twenty miles out, ballpark ish. Yeah. So dude. take take it from there, man. You just tell your team, hey dudes, get down. So they know. They know because I've also I've had a year to prep them for this scenario too. I've I've provided these guys training for that entire year. I've spelled out a similar scenario to these guys. I told them, hey, we're going to we're going to take contact and I'm going to do this to the target. And it requires you to take cover and then to check in with me. Like if all, if, and I go over contingencies with my team, if this is what I need from you, if you see something, you need to tell me this, this, and this. If I tell you that I'm going to do something to the target, I need you to do this. So they were prepared and I told them to take cover and, um, and they reported back and they said, we're all, we're all undercover. And now it's like, I think I'm 30 seconds out now and now I'm inside of a building and now I'm still line of sight comms. I still can communicate with the B1 and he's starting his bombing run and he, I I get final confirmation from the commander 
uh, the commander says, go ahead, hammer it. I give clearance until the a B1. Do you remember the call sign? I think it was Bone. Yeah. It might have been Bone 1-1. One, one. So Bone 1-1 one, one cleared hot. So And I was Jaguar. That was my call sign. Ja- <laughs> Jaguar, legit, dude. Jaguar, it's a good Air Force call sign. Jaguar 05. So um, uh, he releases three, and it's like, I don't know, uh, a minute 10, a minute time of fall. I think it's it, it's something like that. Um, it, and anyway, so the bombs are in the air, and now I know that I have a minute, right? So I'm I'm getting on the team radio, and I'm telling the guys a minute, you know, and everybody's like, "Yeah, Roger that." And then it hits the yeah, splash time, so I give my my team a splash call, and that's an army term, and I'm very familiar with it, and it's letting them know in five seconds something is gonna something devastating is gonna happen. So it gives the guys enough time if they are firing. Now they really need to take cover. Because that blast at 150 meters will do significant damage to your human body. It will toss you. And, and I have a story about somebody who left an arm out of, you know, without having cover and almost broke his arm. Just the just the shockwave. So at the five second call, this is the most scared I've ever been in my life because I hear the whistle. There's a whistle that bombs make. And it is a legitimate whistle. You can hear these things cutting through the air. And it is enough to make your asshole pucker because it's 150 meters away and it's going as fast as that jet was going, as fast as that bomber is going, with with probably a little bit more. It's probably going a little bit faster than that, than that jet is going. So these things whistle through the air and um now i'm like i if i did my job right everything is good and if i did my job wrong everybody's gone including me and these things hit and the blast wave when it hit me it blew out all the windows that i was in the i was in a mud hut that had shitty windows in it but the blast was so severe that and I knew, like I prepped my team to keep their mouth open during this because the overpressurization will rock you. So I have my mouth open like an idiot, and then the windows blow open and the door goes flying open. And I have my buddy has a video of it, and I've been meaning to, I've been trying to get a hold of him for years. And the blast wave hits, and the door goes flying open, and the Afghanis that were with us go to run out so they could start fighting again. And my buddy puts his hand in front of him, and he says, "Wait!" And these fucking massive globs of dirt come falling down from the sky like 10 seconds later like these are massive crushing human being boulders coming down and it absolutely vaporized the tree line there was nothing left there was absolutely zero fire left from that thing and then i i I returned did a a re-attack on it and my first engagement was a danger close airstrike at 150 meters with three 500 pound bombs in 50 meter increments under fire like getting fired at at the same time so it was like it was so funny that that is my that is my first engagement and that kind of set the tone for the rest of my career like i thought this is normal so it kind of everything set me up to be able to deal with whatever like no matter what was thrown at me it couldn't compare to this me being a young guy with no experience and having a scenario like that it kind of sets conditions to where you're like okay it can't get any worse than that that was your baptism that was my baptism by fire and it was my team absolutely like 
I have I have a plaque here on the wall from my team when I did it, and it says, um, t "Tally target danger close cleared hot." Dan Presso Libre. That was a third group team that I was working with there, but it uh, the team sergeant. Uh, the, the the other team sergeant that was there with us came over to me like right after the bomb hit. He's like, "Bro, I didn't know you liked to party." <laughs> like that's what he said to me as soon as I just hammered oh, this dude. thing, and yeah. that's, and he just it completely lightened the mood. But so funny. But that's the credibility that you hope for. You hope to get a, a chance to show what you're made of and to solve a problem and to like. I affected the battlefield in a way to where it increased every, even the Afghani's morale. Like nobody was dropping. I almost five had died. I almost dropped five bombs um, right after that because now I'm just like, okay, if this is normal, then then add two more to that, and that building's going away. The next threat right behind that is going away. The commander nominated all those targets after the team start got shot. That's fair game. Anybody in that area, you just voted. You just you just you took out one of our guys, two of our guys. We are going to get the initiative back. So the commander has the right to nominate targets at that point. And he's like, do it. That's the next one. So I was ready to put like five five hundred pounders on a building. I switched it to a two thousand pounder, but like that was the first time for me doing the job and they saw what capability I can bring. And then I could do no harm. Like from that point on, didn't matter what I did, that team would go undoubtedly to war with me for me. And I was part of I was part of their team. Like that is what you hope for. That's what you train for. Yeah. And like that is I try to explain that to people, but it's like you can't explain the the feeling that you get of being able to affect the area and to, you know, change the tide of battle. And that's what a combat controller can do with a, with a skilled pilot overhead, a combat controller can change the tide of battle. Like the initiative can be completely gone. And this has happened several times. Service members have been KIA guys are getting killed on the battlefield and you want to talk about a hit to morale. A U.S. service member going down is the lowest that anybody can go, but it takes a devastating act to gain that initiative back. And a lot of times a combat controller is there to tip that hand again. Like when everybody is like, fuck, and not to say anybody stops doing their job, but man, it really helps the situation when there's 500, 2000 pound bombs going off. And that's what, that's what we come to bring. That's what we bring to bear. And I think that relationship of, it's kind of serendipitous, like having that relationship as a sister service member of a army or a Navy team. We, we operate with the Navy also, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not governed by any of their regulation. They can't affect my job. Like I'm no matter what I am safe from like having my job, either me be demoted or me being put in a shitty position. I can't be touched mm -hmm. on this team for because I'm in the Air Force. Now, it doesn't mean I don't do my job like the best way possible, but right. that is the perfect relationship to have because I can tell a commander no. If I don't think that that's right, I can disobey a direct order and tell them no, I'm not going to do that. And they, they, that's intentional. 
Yeah, it's intentional. And it makes yeah. sense why it's that way. Yeah. Where you have the ability to say, hey, sir, that doesn't make sense. I'm not going to hit that target or, or whatever it is. Yeah. You know? So getting back to this control. So it's an emotional roller coaster. Oh, yeah. little recap. Two guys get wounded. You got to go up to the position where, you know, one of the guys is wounded. Mm-hmm. You've got a dude with a saw laying down covering fire. You're talking to a B1. He's seven minutes out at the time. Yeah. Like, you know, shot at, commander's yelling at you, blow up that building or that tree line. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned you hit like that moment of clarity where everything got quiet, but I'm guessing it wasn't actual quiet, but you mentally, it was calm in your brain. It was, it, it was actually quiet. It was actually quiet. It, okay. There was, I was not receiving any other feedback at the time that I was receiving guidance from the commander. And there was machine guns going off. Mm-hmm. Somebody just shot a Carl G right next to me, a Carl Gustav recoilless rifle that'll like it'll make your teeth feel like they're falling out. So there's things going on around me, but it's I, calm in your brain. And it absolutely, it 100% went completely quiet to the point to where there was no restrictions on me being able to focus. Like I had nothing restricting my attention. And I was in, it was like I was in control of it. Mm-hmm. And and you usually don't have that because a combat controller is usually running around with two radios on two different frequencies. He's talking to some fighters and he's talking to a bomber or a gunship. He's talking to the commander. So he's got up to three people talking to him at once. And that's another thing that you got to be able to filter that shit. Sure, one at a time. Yeah, you and, and you got to prioritize. So what are you, this emotional roller coaster that's happening you realize how dangerous it is, what's going on. You're talking to your guys. You tell them, hey, 60 seconds, five seconds, you know, the splash call. How are you sounding on the radio for the bomber and why? I, I, that's another piece that goes into it is your training. They tell you, you know, throughout your training in the beginning to maintain the same tone, the same cadence, because when it gets really ugly, they should be able to pick up on that. And when there's a change in it. When there's a change in your demeanor and your tone, a pilot should know about it. They should be able to pick up on externals if you've done your job the right way. So that doesn't mean that even though I'm in a troops in contact situation and I, it kind of necessitates or dictates having a sense of urgency in my voice, that doesn't help in the very beginning when you're establishing the first communication with somebody. Because if the first thing a B-1 bomber who probably, I doubt he's had very many employments up until this point, there wasn't a lot of B-1s before this. There was a ton of B-52s and it didn't have the best pod. So there's a lot of variables working against this guy being comfortable in this situation. So it's even more important that I think you maintain some sort of calm demeanor and they emphasize it in your initial training. Like you need to be calm. You need to be concise. The things that you say, you need to make sure that they mean something like the words that you say need to actually refer to something in the publication to the, to the standard operating procedure, to the publication, to the regulation that dictates, this is how you, employ ordnance from an aircraft in order to do it it needs to follow this regimented process so once you start deviating from that process 
It's not a problem unless that is the first communication that 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 pilot has with that JTAC on the ground. So you're you're trying to via a calm voice establish a calm, clear, concise demeanor with your language, so that when shit really, really, really hits the fan, and you change to, hey man, I need these bombs now. Right. That guy knows exactly like, hey, we elevated it. Things are a little bit different. So that calm I, and as a dude in the air who's talked to those guys on the ground, when a dude checks in or you check in with a JTAC or a FAC and he's calm, there is an initial establishment of a, a good, confident rapport with this guy. Yeah. And if he's speaking to you in a cadence, so it's not the micro machine guy talking super fast, mm-hmm. he's, he's like, hey, hey, scrapper 2-1, stand by for 9-line. And you're like, okay, game on. Yeah. Um, do you remember being able to uh, you know, keep that calm demeanor the entire time? I, for that engagement, I absolutely did. And then I've, I've, I've thought about other scenarios where I did the opposite. I let myself become overwhelmed by external circumstances. So for this engagement, I think it's because I was under so much stress. I think I was so freaked out to where my body, <laughs> my mind, and, and that's what it was because I, I can't tell you that any of it was deliberate. My mind went to a state of like ultra relaxed and then back to my training. And a, a lot of people say it like you're going to at your worst scenario. And I was at my worst there because I was breathing hard. Like I was, I was out of breath. I was fucking scared out of my mind because I just like, I was like serpentining to this battle position because it was like under heavy fire. We infilled into a hot HLZ. Like we were reinforcements because people were getting shot actively. So we knew we were flying into this. So I make it to this position. I'm so disoriented. I'm breathing hard. I'm in a parasympathetic state. I'm in fight or flight. And then once this guy tells me, time to go to work, dude. Then I was like, oh, okay, shut down. Like, And when I say shut down, I mean, it's time to go to work. Like, I didn't let anything else affect me because I knew I was in the state of stress. Like, I'm familiar with it. I've been trained to it. I've been in so many stressful situations to where I had predictability in a chaotic environment. So you calmed down. I calmed down. And and when I say I, I wasn't that I didn't have control of the situation, I had control of it. But it's like... There's no way that I can tell you that there's a, I can put myself in a stressful environment right now and be at the top of my game. I would tell you that if I got put in a stressful situation right now, I would probably make dumb decisions. But in this case, it wasn't. And I was able to come back to being more present and prioritizing what needed to happen. And then my emotional state was like, you know, the, you got endorphins and, and, and all these chemicals pumping through your body. That's like relaxing you. That's making you in a, in a euphoric state. And I did feel calm. I really, really felt calm way more than I felt when I was running to my battle position. So the fact that I could get that calm made me so much more confident with what I immediately thought was the solution to this problem. And then when I got on the radio, I knew my solution was going to come off as weird. Right. I knew the B1 was going to be like, what the fuck, dude? You're going to give me a, a beacon? 
you're going to have me search for a beacon. And I brought that beacon with me because I intended on using it at night because we had gunship allocated to us all night. And that's the go-to. Like, mm-hmm. That makes jo- your your job for an AC-130 gunship, if you got a beacon, that thing can just hammer. And it did. It it shot all night while I was sleeping. The second night, I was able to sleep. But like, That's what put you to sleep. That's what put me to sleep. I was exhausted also. <laughs> that's that awesome. But the... So the fact that that B1's checking in, and I already know we're going to a deviated process. We're already going on to talk-ons. I'm talking him onto the target. I'm telling him, Bone 1-1, one, one, Jaguar 5, how do you read? He's got me loud and clear. Roger, Bone 1-1, one, one, Jaguar 5 is troops in contact, two friendlies wounded, standby for talk-on. And that's it. And, and he knows from that, he's like, okay. I'm going to get out a pencil and a, and a piece of paper and I'm going to start writing shit down. And just talking to that pilot like that, regardless of how skilled he is, is going to send him into his process of being in a stressful state. And I knew that I was deviating from the standard by like going on to a uh, uh, friendly centric close air support. But the way that I was communicating with him built confidence in what I was doing. Because I told him very clearly the very important information that he needed to know. Did they generate their own elevation from their sensors, or did you provide them with an elevation in the nine line? I provided them with elevation. I did have the elevation. So you it had, was, okay, so it, you had elevation. They generated their grid based off the polar plot from the friendly grid, so right. the, the target grid, and then it's game on. Right. So was there any kind of a readback from them? There was a confirmation of friendlies. So there was a readback of my beacon. Okay. So he he passed, you know, he, they emphasized friendly grid and he passed the location of my beacon and it matched. Okay. And I think at this point too. Because this is in the world of closed air sport for anybody that, I mean, this is outside the box significantly. Yeah. You know, a nine line where they're, I'm going to read you, but obviously he confirmed friendly positions, but. If he's generating his own grid from 25,000 feet with an Atari 1984 sensor that, in this case, all he's generating is your friendly position via the beacon and the IR signature of the mortar rounds. This is, I mean, this is totally outside the box. It is uh, It is outside the box for standard operating procedure. Right. What is normal for employing bombs from a bomber airplane is not this. No, not even Not close. a danger close. No. And so the, uh, again, man, I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to paint the picture a little bit from the pilot side on this. So you talk about the emotion and you had mentioned, like, I'm sure those guys are going into their process, the pilots of, and the bombardier. And so when those guys, once it's all said and done and they're, you know, bone one, one in heading Jaguar zero five cleared hot time of flight, a minute 10 ish. It's quiet. Yeah. Right? It's crickets. It's real quiet. What's that like on the ground? It's nerve-wracking. There, There's, like, it seems like a whole lot longer than what it really is. So, for us on the ground, everything is so much longer than I what I would imagine it is for the aircraft. But I've also heard fighters say the same thing. Like, it is the longest it's a time of flight. Dude. It's a nonstop heart attack. Yeah. And then, and then waiting for... You know, BDA waiting for battle damage assessment from the ground is, I'm sure that's terrifying for pilots. That's the scary part for you guys. 
And the scary part for a ground dude is that whistle. Like when you know you're watching your watch, like I'm watching my watch. I know when he released, I know when that bomb is going to hit and knowing like when I need to open my mouth, I know when I need to open my mouth and I know when I need to get on the radio and tell the dude splash. Like, so I'm aware of it. And then to be able to look up and then I can see through the window and I can hear the whistle. I can see the blur, the, the three black things come down and everything that there's so much going through your mind. <laughs> but to be honest with you, just like I said, everything was going to be really, really okay. Or I was going to be dead. <laughs> like if somebody <laughs> fucked up, I felt confident that I wasn't going to leave the situation with just like a fragmentation to the arm. Right. I was going to be, I was going to be dead. It was dead. dead. So, so I'm sorry to the other service members that didn't get killed in my airstrike where I could have fucked up, but y'all were dead. Like yeah, they if, didn't even if, know it. If the B one fucked up and it wasn't my fault, I'm sorry <laughs> to the guys that are still there. But, but it is, you do think about that. That's, that is a hundred percent. One of the things that you're processing is, there could be a fat finger, like some dude could have jammed in the wrong coordinate. It's human error. Like war is hell. It's a dangerous job and, and accidents happen. And you can't be mad at somebody for that because those B1 guys were probably in the air for fucking seven hours. They were probably, when they did that bombing run, they might've been in the air for seven hours. Like everybody's going through some shit. So to think that everybody is going to be doing everything perfect at the time when you need them to, it's not realistic. So I think that's a variable that you absolutely think is, is a possibility. And the number one concern that you have in your head is letting your team down. So the biggest thing that I'm worried about is not that bomb hitting me. It's letting my team down, mm -hmm. not being able to do my job and affect the battlefield and letting my brothers that are part of my organization too and letting the organization down as a whole that is the number one fear in any warrior's mind is not is not whatever he is doing right there like it being perfect the number one concern is letting his buddy down letting his wingman down letting down somebody who he should have been switched on for the pilot is trying to do his job the best way to support that dude on the ground. And if he doesn't do it, that's his worst case scenario. Like that is the thing that bothers you the most. So I think that there's that kind of relieves some of the tension in that. I'm not too worried about anything. I'm not worried about people shooting at me. I'm not worried about um, like the, the I'm worried about the bombs not doing their job and somebody else getting injured and somebody looks at me and they're like, man, we really could have used that bomb. Yeah. And man, if you were just better at your job and I got buddies that have done that, like yeah. buddies that have dropped completely missed the target and like, and then people got fucked up. And that is, that's terrifying to me. Sure. So working through those emotional states, there's like a, an immediate euphoria and clarity in the battle space and being hyper alert to exactly what you need to be hyper alert to. And having enough presence to understand how critical it is to you, the, the, the words that you're saying to the pilot, 
are very, there's so much more meaning to the words that you're saying than just the words that you're saying. Like it is causing the pilot to go, nope, I'm going to do a loop. I'm going to, I'm going to wheel it up. I'm going to do an initial pass. I'm going to map this area because this dude sounds fucked up. Mm -hmm. I can't blame that pilot for that. If I'm, if I'm not establishing credibility and what I'm saying for. Yeah. And it's, and it's not even that I'm following procedure that correctly, but I'm omitting the things and I'm doing this deliberately. I'm omitting the things that are not going to cause him to get hit by another airplane. And for me to cause the bomb to land in the wrong area, there's, there's two things that are, that take precedent in this environment for me. And I feel confident enough to omit all my check-in information with this B1. This is initial comms. And I feel comfortable enough to give him the situation update as follows. Troops in contact. So now he's switched on enough to be like, okay, I might not get the whole TT Fakoar, you know, the full check-in that he's expecting to hear. He's not going to get everything. He's not going to get altimeter. He's not going to get any aircraft operating above him. Mm-hmm. I might I, I might tell him aircraft that are still under him, but that's on. I better start clearing those. You got to deconflict on that. Yeah. And I had no shit after this bombing run. At one point, when I had the stack, they call it, like when I took over after I got to my battle space and I was fully functioning, I had 17 aircraft overhead. Jeez. 17 aircraft stacked from 3,000 feet all the way up to 22,000 feet at different levels. And it's helicopters and it's bombers and it's fighters and it's ISR platforms and it's refuelers. There's a fucking AWACS that's flying around talking to me and, and jamming out my frequency. So there's like, <laughs> there's so many other things going on that aren't important. There are very important things. There's helicopters buzzing around at 3,000 feet that I need to clear out of the way so this bomber can do his run. Mm-hmm. He needs to feel confident that I've done those things, that I've cleared the airspace for his bomb fall line. And I'm doing that by telling him the very, very important things. And he can trust me enough to ultimately that dude's got to sign off on that bomb leaving the jet too. So that is a huge risk to those guys to be able to say, I feel confident in what this guy is saying. He's giving me critical information. I'm getting confirmatory things off of my radar. And he feels confident enough to hang it on the line. Yeah, that, that warm and fuzzy to hit the red button. And there's plenty of people that would be so upset with me for saying that, but they haven't been in that situation to where something needed to happen. And the pilot who's there flying, he's the person that owns that decision. Mm -hmm. Not the armchair quarterback person. It is that dude that needs to make that decision. And maybe it doesn't meet, you know, publication or, or regulation, but same thing that I'm doing and my ground force commander is doing that pilots doing also. And none of that happens without like communication, clear communication and just building trust. Totally. And it's that you had mentioned totally a relationship because as the dude airborne, he's got his checklist of items that need to be met before he hits that button. Just like, you have your checklist of items that need to be met before you say cleared hot. Mm-hmm. So all those boxes, check, 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 and the warm and fuzzy is there where you guys are on the same page. Right. And it's incumbent on, as the JTEC, to provide that information. 
And if there isn't a piece of information that's there, it's incumbent on the pilot or that crew to pull it from you or vice versa. Right. So it's a push-pull like till you both meet all your boxes checked. And I think that's where, you know, that's a, a critical piece of that communication where it anchors onto that communication and that mini relationship you've already established via the initial check-in. Hey, you're deconflicted, so you're not going to hit airplanes. And they don't even need to know that there's helos at 3,000 feet. They don't. Just the helos need to know, hey, dude, just get out of the way. Right. Everybody else, get out of the That's way. That's my job. My, they, yeah. My job totally. is to do something predictable that he knows that he's heard everything that he needs to hear. He doesn't need to know everything that's going on right. between him and the ground. The critical stuff. Yeah. Hey, friendlies here, bad guys here, elevation, grid, geometry. I mean, it's 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 not a long list of things, but it's if done the right way and with the correct, I think, tone of voice yep. and a clear pronunciation, you know, <laughs> dude, it's so easy to sit here and shoot the shit about it now, you know, here right. in this tiny little room, right. you know, but, uh, under controlled yeah. certain circumstances right now. Yeah. And then us armchair quarterbacking it. But if you want to boil it down, there's two items on that, on that list that that guy needs. Yeah. That's it. But there's a reason for the other seven bits of information. And then the pre, it, the pre uh, nine line information. There's a reason for all of that, but man, two of those lines can get the job done. Yeah. So what is? Dude, this is legit, man. So what is the? This is getting back to the story. So yeah. Bombs hit. Yep. All right. Windows and doors get blown out and everything. What's your first call back to Bone One One? So Bone One One hit hears my other transmissions on the radio also. So that's another thing that's going on. He hears that I'm working a Kazabak at the same time. So he knows that the net, he knows that he can't clog up the net. The, I have one operating frequency. I have one frequency for the urgent things that need to happen, need to go on in that frequency. So he hears me talking to helicopters. I'm talking to attack helicopters that um, I, I had Cobras. I had, I had Cobras with me on this one. So I have Cobras that I'm working and I think they're just bugging out. I'm doing fire missions with them and I'm, I'm talking to the F-15s and I, I'm talking to, I think I had a predator overhead and I'm actually looking at the predator's feed because I have a viewing device. I have a screen that I can, I, I can view what the unmanned aerial vehicle overhead is looking at. So I'm steering his his camera over to an area and I'm trying to get an idea of what this area looks like to this, to this B1. I'm working this at the same time. So he hears me doing all this stuff and he knows that he's going to get BDA whenever I'm able to pass BDA, but he hears me jump on the radio right away. Like he hears me call a copy 30 seconds. I'm giving him a, a quick warm fuzzy that I'm tracking what he's saying. He says he released bombs away, time of fall, minute 10 seconds. Roger, Jaguar. And and it's just, I'll pass my call sign to let him know I heard him, but I need to keep the radio frequency quiet because there's other shit that's going on. I'm working the casualty evacuation for the two injured people is going on at the same time. So this is going to be, the other thing is this is going to be a hot Kazabak. So this is going to be, and here's more credibility to the PJs that they are coming into a battlefield that is under extreme fire. Like there is bombs coming down, there's AK, there's 
There's enemy all over the place, and they are a the number one target. That is what everybody wants to shoot down. Yo, helicopter. helicopter, man. <laughs> Sweet, the PJs are coming. Let's shoot them. <laughs> and these guys, these guys are flying nap of the earth. Oh, jeez. And they are coming in hot. And they come in. It looked like they were full, full pitch. Like they were coming in nose down, which is indicating they're hauling ass. And they're like 50 feet over the ground. And I'm passing them. I'm passing them what I just did with Bone. I said, hey, Bone just just employed. I'm bringing him around for another pass. I need you to maintain north of this area. And then I'm also coordinating the HLZ information that what they can expect. I give them the HLZ condition, let them know it's hot. I've given them location. I'm giving them number of patients and the door and the status. And these guys are coming in. And I actually worked with one of the PJs at the final unit that I was at. And come to find out, like, he tells me his side of the story. And he's like, dude, we were getting our asses shot off. Like, they were getting a whole bunch of their helicopter. Yeah. So, like, there's all that going on. So, Bone is switched on enough to, to be quiet. And, and I told him, as soon as you employ, I need you to reset. Go right back out to the east because I'm probably going to have you employ again. So he spins it and he's going back out and he's waiting for me to start passing him either a reattack or a new target. And I ended up shifting to that building. But there was so much shit going on and it's like comical. It's like a, it's like a joke how much stuff is on my plate and it's just too easy to start chipping away at this thing and getting shit done because they're switched on people all over the place like the pilots are switched the fuck on the ground force is switched on the dudes that got shot are switched on like my buddy he got shot in the neck and he didn't even know first of all he got shot in the neck he was shooting he's engaging and the bullet hit his gun bounced off his gun hit his hand and hit him in the neck and like flayed his neck and he's still shooting his gun's still working. He's shooting. And his team, is his buddy next to him is like, bro, you're fucking shot. And he like, <laughs> he grabs his neck. So he's still like, everybody's in it. Everybody's part of the equation. Everybody's trying to solve this problem. And it's like, as soon as there's so much crazy shit going on, people are getting shot. Helicopters are coming in. And then the second those, those 500 pounders hit everybody's morale picks up and oh, yeah. you can hear machine gun fire cadence pick up from all of our positions. The second all those bombs go off, like we're, you know, guys are doing talking guns at the different battle positions and like guys are shooting and then, you know, some other guys will go off. But the second those bombs hit and everybody runs back out, all the positions open up and they're cyclic and everybody's just getting it because morale increased. And on the opposite end, like the morale is just crushed on the enemy and we monitor that shit. That's the other funny thing. I get to hear that. I get to hear the, the comments that the Taliban make over their no radios. Shit. Yeah. So that's the other like great part is we can hear their morale getting crushed. Good. And our interpreters relaying this real time. And he's like, yeah, they're saying they're, they're checking in with each other and dudes are not checking in. And, you know, it takes a second to understand what the interpreter is trying to say. And he's like, yeah, he keeps on calling Mahmoud and Mahmoud is not answering. And, and Abdul is not answering either. And they were in the trees. Like, they'll say shit like that. And you're like, yes, yes. That gives you that confirmatory right there besides, right. like, 
besides actually seeing their bodies explode, you're you're getting that those comms. And I just remember the next attack that I did was like immediately after that with the F-15 that was still overhead and it was a dud. So my second bomb, my first bombs were danger close, string of three, awesome. Mm -hmm. My second bomb was a dud GBU-12. No kidding. So it's like you have this, you have this standard that you expect and then a dud. I hear the whistle again. I'm like, yeah, I tell the guys to get down and then boom, nothing. Oh, dude, that's a bad feeling. And we got to go recover that thing. In the battlefield, we got to go, we got to go blow that thing up. Tag in the EOD guys. <laughs> hey guys, we got some work for you. I'm not going. Oh man. Yeah. That's, that is one of the, the worst thing you can, you can experience from the, you know, from the pilot side is, is a fratricide. Mm -hmm. Missing a target and a dud are, it's essentially an invisible bomb. It did nothing for you. Right. So you go back to square one. So that's, that's a no shitter, man. Um, it sucks. And it, and it could be no fault to your own. Like you're saying, there's, there's lots of bombs, like a full lot is like hundreds, you know, hundreds of bombs that come from this one lot and they have this fuse attached to them and the fuse can be faulty and we don't even know because jets are flying with these things and you can have like 80% of the bombs can be, can have a fault with them, which could cause a dud of a fucked up fuse yep. or fucked up tail. And that happens all the time. But yeah, you never know. And you don't actually know until it's, until you employ either at a live range or in combat. Yep. So yeah. Dude, I'll tell you what, I mean, when it comes to stories, you know, my, my Ready Room podcast policy of stopping at two hours, we're 35 minutes late. <laughs> so we're, we're th two hours and 36 minutes. This is, this is absolutely epic, dude. Um, just running my gums about this. Man, um, but it was, it was a very formative time in my dude, life. Totally. Was, yeah. So we're going to, we'll start to taper this down. We're in the eighth inning right now. Yeah. What was the, once you finally had some time to kind of decompress from that mission set. So, you know, you're sipping a cup of coffee, you're eating an MRE or something. When you get a chance to shoot the shit with the guys and just kind of decompress from that initial experience. Talk about that. What's, I guess, kind of what's just going through your head or how does it feel when you're like, okay, now I can actually, I'm not getting shot at no one's wounded, so there's not a Kazimak simultaneously while I've got a nine line in place, and there's not healers at three thousand feet that I gotta push out of the way so I don't get hit with a bomb. And these eighty-seven thousand things that are on your plate, you got your empty plate and your cup of coffee. How's that? It doesn't compare to what you're going through in the moment, but I think there's an addiction to it. There's an addiction to that feeling and that celebration of a victory of a win because we took that as a victory. That mission was a success. We achieved our objective, what we went out there to do. And we, we understood that there could be some casualties, but it's like you come off of this crazy high of like all these emotions and feelings and, and things going through your brain and your body. And then you try to keep that thing. Like you try and chase it. So there's a celebration like guys, Guys know how to fight, but they also know how to like burn it down. So there's there is a celebration. Like the guys will go and we'll have a drink and we'll we'll shoot the shit. We'll high five just like the movie show. And we're like, fuck yeah, I was doing this and and you know comparing wounds if you got them. Like like you're you're talking about like I remember like talking about our shoulders. Like our shoulders were fucked up. They were black and blue. 
our arms were absolutely, our, our firing shoulders were black and blue because we were shooting that much. Like, and, and talking about shit like that, like, yeah, dude. And my, my buddy blew his eardrums out and we were making fun of him for it because he fired a recoilless rifle in a, an enclosed room. And that all happened in the same event. And, and we're debriefing that, but it's like a celebration and you're celebrating the victory and you're doing it in a ridiculous way. Like it's not healthy. Like it's not, you should not do this, <laughs> but try telling somebody who just uh, yeah. go, went through that. They're, they're not going to celebrate, but it's also because you know that you're going to go through the other worst part of, of war, of a battle, and you're going to lose your friends. So I think there's some justification for it there to where it's like, you're partying hard when times are good because you know the dark days are coming. And it's there is a debrief. There is a, a formalized um, way to capture everything that happened and lessons learned and, and, and generate a after-action report. I owe one for the air-specific things for every single bomb that gets dropped, every transmission where I am employing fires or I'm using some sort of kinetic effect or escalatory fires, it needs to be documented and it needs to be reported as a, as an after action report because the guys that are getting ready to replace me are reading those. So before they deploy, they're going in there reading these after action reports to yeah. prepare to take over for me in, in my area. So there's a formalized process, but there's a shit ton of drinking sure. and partying too. Yeah. You got to, decompress a little bit yeah let the hair down awesome man well bro let's uh let's finish it up here so this is the uh first off that's an insane story absolutely badass the amount of moving parts that are going on and just the description and to have a b1 check-in with his atari i mean if you could script it like <laughs> what's your ideal aircraft and all, i mean the amount of shit that's going on that's completely out of the box of what you're trained but when you're problem solving and your training kicks in and you come up with a polar plot from a friendly position with a beacon with, you know, dude, just really cool. All right. So this is the, the five minute random round with Susan. Yeah. So we're just going to, I'm going to throw out some questions completely from the hip that are unscripted. And then I'll turn it over to you for some closing thoughts and, you know, lesson or two learned from being a combat controller. Uh, first question, this is again, totally off, off the top of the head. So, your bro's a Marine enlisted dude turns F-18 pilot. You did 20 years, you know, enlisted Air Force. Got out as a Master Sergeant. Yeah. Is that right? 10 yeah. deployments. Yeah. So if you couldn't do what you did, but you still couldn't follow in your bro's footsteps because he's a Marine and you can't be a Marine, what would you do? I know what I'd do now. What do you got? I would be a boat driver in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. No, hang on. No, so not retirement job. So like you got You're job. gonna you're gonna be in the Air Force or Marine Corps Navy something. What would you have done if you if you didn't do combat control? Knowing what you know now, I think I always had a ambitions of mentoring mentoring youth, and I I still have that. But I I thought that that was something that I would be involved in at some point. So I thought ton of respect for my wrestling coach, my shop teacher, and my history teacher. Those were some really, really influential people uh, early in, earlier in my life. And I really saw myself as like a hybrid of all of those, like as the wrestling coach, as the shop teacher, as the history teacher. Um, 
as like more of a mentorship role to, to be that formative person in a young man's life that absolutely turns him into who he's going to be when he grows up. Gotcha. All right, cool, man. Good answer. Next one. All right, you're, you're in the shit, man. Danger close. You get a section of one type of aircraft. Nobody else. Who do you pick? And this is uh, dude, it's the easiest. Is this, I, I feel like I know where this is going. And as a Hornet driver, I'm like, son of a bitch, I know what he's gonna say. It's hog, it's hog all dude. All right, dude. It's it's the A10 with that 30 mic mic with that 30 millimeter cannon on the front. Um, but did they, they bring a lot more than that? I mean, that's what they're famous right, for, right? But, but they can they carry a shitload of ordnance. They carry so much bombs, but I'm telling you, going back to that morale increaser. When you hear that gun go off twice, you hear that gun go off twice. You hear that gun when it fires, and you hear that gun when the bullets break the sound barrier. So it, ma- it makes a really distinct, distinctive sound when it fires. And it's like the timing is off because the distance that they're shooting and the altitude that they're shooting, it's not they're not synced up. So it, you'll see it. You'll hear the first explosion of the round coming out of the tube and then it breaking the sound barrier. And it just makes this... It makes this humming sound of freedom. It's like the most joyful thing you can ever expect to hear on the battlefield. Like it, it is everybody like instantly starts yelling. I don't care if you're if it's an Afghani or an Iraqi or a Syrian or an African that, that are our partner force, when they hear that A10 30 millimeter go off. Everybody starts cheering. It is a universal sound of joy. Morale goes up. And morale shoots through the roof. I knew it. I knew it. I'm like, I'm going to ask this question. I'm like, I know what the answer is. And it's funny because I talked to, you know, when I did my fact tour, I did it with tanks, second tanks. It was the best year I've had in the Marine Corps. And my buddies, uh, Hornet Bros, they're like, oh, dude, what aircraft would you have on? And I was like, well, I wouldn't have an F-18. If I get my pick as it, you know, from the ground. You got some perks with a with a tank and Abrams. You you just put a one twenty main round into a building and it goes away. So mm-hmm. there's some cool things you can do. But I I tell my dude I love Apaches, Cobras, and A tens. Mm-hmm. And then you know that would be my my first line, you know type thing. So this is I love it. I knew it was gonna be a plug for the A ten. <laughs> so <laughs> the gunship is 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 a pretty close. Yeah, AC one thirty. AC one thirty is a pretty close second, but those those suckers aren't flying the, during the daytime. Yeah, you could get the A ten to fly in. They will fly in clouds in a thunderstorm. They will fly in the worst shit, and they'll get in a knife fight for you. Yeah, they really for the for I'll, I speak I speak broadly. F eighteens uh, will do the same thing, but. A-10s will get in a fist fight for you. They'll, they will come down and start punching people in the face. Like that is what that, that 30 millimeter provides you. And, and now with their rocket system that they're carrying, their APK, APKWS, their uh, laser guided rockets, it is even more like of an intimate, of a soldier's intimate friend. Like that is your, call it the you know p51 the the angels on your shoulder like yeah. that is what that a10 is it's it's angel on your shoulders because that thing will drop down and do some dirty stuff for you dude that's awesome man so all right little promo for the a10 guys <laughs> and if the uh, if congress ever decides to be dumb again and try to get rid of the a10 i'm gonna, I'm gonna mail on this podcast <laughs> um dude just we'll, we'll, we'll call that a day on the on the random susan round but dude i'd like to finish up man the floor is yours man give us a you, know, you got to experience a bunch of stuff. If there was like a takeaway from 
being a combat controller without getting into the stories. And again, by the way, the second one we're going to do here is crazy and insane stories as a combat controller with Eric Ballister. They get X-rated. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, but what's what's a good one you took away as a combat controller? I think uh, the biggest thing, that my favorite thing that I took away from it was combat control gave me an opportunity to surround myself with individuals that were three times selected. So these guys had to decide three times that they wanted to be in the position that they were in. So they had volunteered for a assignment, then had to volunteer for another specialized assignment, and then had to volunteer for another specialized assignment. So the fact that I was in a position to be around people that had been motivated three times to lay it on the line. And that means something, man, that that somebody can be humble themselves enough to be screened, to be given critical feedback, to to possibly be told you're not good enough. And that takes some fucking balls. What that produces is bar none, the most patriotic, most hardened warrior. And the fact that I was allowed to be around in the presence of people that have been in that position, because I still talk about the guys in the past, but the guys that I, I look up to that choose to sacrifice so much, like so much of their personal and their emotional and their mental state, and and that's a big that's a big point for me. Uh, another side point is the, these guys have sacrificed so much twenty years at war, also, and they're still paying the price even after they retire. So that level of sacrifice is like the biggest thing that I feel fortunate for to be able to do that job with people that genuinely care about their country that much to lay it on the line. Three times. Nice. All right, man. Dude, I think that we just crushed it. And I know we're like, dude, we're not going to go for two hours. Yeah, yes. right. yeah that ship sailed. <laughs> but uh, no kidding, dude. Thanks for the time. This that has been a badass. blast, man. I, I, I think this is – I'm lucky that you even entertained talking to me because I've been missing it for a year since I retired, you know, hanging out with the Brotherhood. I've been getting away from it violently, trying to rebrand myself. So it's – fucking awesome to to reminisce to talk with uh like-minded people again thank you it's oh, awesome man. pleasure is mine so folks for uh, eric and myself uh we're gonna call it a day so we'll see you next time on episode two with eric we're gonna do the second part of it just gonna be some stories when he's done some really 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 cool stuff with some really gnarly individuals that uh could probably write a book about i'm pretty sure so all right <laughs> folks we're out of here we'll see you next time